Well, hello and welcome to The Mariner, with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, I want to share with you an interview which I did with Paul Trammell recently. He has a wonderful podcast called the Sailing and Cruising Podcast. I'd encourage everyone to go and check that out if you haven't already. I know it's very popular with people that listen to this podcast, but I think there's still a lot of value in sharing uh, both the interview and the opportunity to join Paul's podcast audience uh, with those who have not yet found him. So if you've heard this already with Paul, um, well, you get to hear it again and you get to hear it all in one shot. I think Paul on his podcast put it over two separate episodes because I talk so much, (laughs) Um, but you have to listen to it all. Uh, Get that sanding done, get that hoovering done. Let's paint that thing until it's finished. Uh, So here in all its glory is, uh, is the interview with Paul. Two very quick notes before we get into it. Number one, apologies for the audio. I'm still learning how to make a good job of that. And it's uh, fair to uh, understand that Paul is recording this through Skype and uh, he's on a boat in Florida kind of doing it via his uh, Wi-Fi in the marina. So a limitation on the audio. The second is that um, there were some uh, difficulties with the connection early on and to kind of cut those out and cut out the uh, the harsh audio that they involved. I've just kind of brought the conversation in at a point where Paul has been asking me what the action is like on an open 60 at sea in heavy seas. And I've uh, given him a pretty uh, explicit version of it, which I tend not to swear on this podcast. So I just thought I'd cut that out. But basically, let's do a slightly cleaner version of it that it's like... Uh, being in a garbage can that someone's beating with a baseball bat. It's noisy, it's menacing, it's very scary. So that's where we go into this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. A a wheelie bin, but I think you can pick your own own container. It's a very very menacing environment when the boat starts to move quicker and quicker. And I guess that starts with the, the psychology, the philosophy of the situation. You're often very far offshore. You're often often uh, pushing the boat as quickly as it will go and on most boats we all get a bit of a feeling over time for when to reef when to change the sails what feels prudent and a lot of that comes down to the feel of the boat and the feeling that well if I actually ease the sail off here the boat's going to go faster I'm going to get more from it and that's a very easy balance to strike in your head I will be comfier the boat will be comfier the problem with something like an open 60 is that it, it can take whatever you can throw at it within reason there's there's no sort of upper limit uh, sometimes with some of the sail configurations so you can have a point where you you don't you have to reef because there's no other possible way of keeping yourself safe you know you're on a boat that's leaping out of the waves uh, a third to a half of the hull is clearing the water entirely it's then sticking its nose under the ne- next wave and because of the flat surface of the deck that starts to act like a, an angled hydroplane the angle of attack of the of the deck itself starts to drive it under the next wave and it will keep scooping up waves in that way uh, for a decent period of time and you'll just be going faster and faster and then it'll get to some critical point where you start to realize that it's digging in the bow and the pressure from the, the mainsail uh, top will start to drive the bow in the water and then pitch pole becomes an issue so if you're reaching if you're running that's the concern going upwind in a strong boat that's, you know, there's no flaws in it, there's no uh, engineering flaws or maintenance flaws or anything else, they can take anything you can throw at them. So they're going upwind at about hull speed, which is about 10 and a half, 11 knots, something like that on that kind of boat. She'll just sort of maybe pick up her heels and and surf a little bit. Um, but the at that point, you're, you're clearing wave backs and just slamming into the next one as hard as you possibly can. Um, the mm. boat can take it. She can make her way to windward in that way, but... 
Um, it's it's ugly, and as I say, it's it's menacing, and uh, it, it's not. I think there's a video of me on YouTube going through, through the Cook Straits in a 55 knot storm, and it's uh, I'm in there for like it's 25 a uh, 24 hour storm, and um, the tide's against me, and then with me, and against me, and with me during this period. So it's 50 knots against tide, and then it's 50 knots with tide. Um, oh my god! All beating in a, in a 60, and uh, it's it's just hideous. So. You can trust the machine. The machine's not going to break. It's not the hardware. It's the software eventually that will fail. That's that's you, the person. So yeah. um, I know people have bought in the 60s to make into cruising boats, but you want to be buying a boat that's designed before like 1995 if you're doing that, because after that, everything gets flat. They're designed for the Vendee Globe where the wind's behind the beam most of the time, and they're absolute pigs going to windward. Yeah. Wow. Well, I guess you have at least the confidence that your boat's not going to break. Mm. Well, that's the thing. It's like open 60s end up sometimes getting a bit of a bad rap, like uh, the keels are snapping off and the masts are snapping. And a lot of that has now been timed up by the fact that the IMOCA uh, technical committee has stipulated specific masts and specific keels. But it's more than that. You know, the amount of work cycles the boats are going through as they're beating up wind, as they're reaching, the amount of decisions a tired solo sailor has to make. You could start to get a little bit of an idea that they're, that they're delicate boats, but when they're working as they should, when there's no flaws, when there's no mistake on behalf of the sailor, there's not much out there that will damage them. And I think with any other kind of boat thinking, well, you know, can it, can it take this? Well, yeah, it, it can take it. It's just the question is, can you? <laughs> right. And how are they as a, you've been cruising in yours lately. How, how are they as a cruising boat? Well, uh, lately, actually, uh, I've been cruising in the <laughs> in the Maxi. So that's the the boat been on the uh, on the YouTube channel. We have two boats: uh, the the Open Sixty and a 80, 80 foot Maxi, a Mistral a Grand Mistral Eighty, um, a boat that kind of represents the peak of the the big Maxis at the end of the at yeah. the nineties. And uh, I took her over up to well, we did the Newport Bermuda race. I came back from Bermuda. And then took her to Newfoundland, uh, to England, and then I soloed her from England, from uh, Southampton to Iceland, and then had a very rough beat from Iceland back to Newfoundland, and then back to here. So that was the circuit. It was kind of the last hurrah for Spartan Ocean Racing. Um, as I say, it's just not really possible to to run that kind of race charter company like that anymore, or certainly not for me. Um, so it was the last last go out, and it gave me an opportunity to see what that Maxi's like. And the Maxi's got a much more rounded kind of um, design profile so it's got nice taper going towards the stern it's got a lot of rock around the water it's got quite a deep forefoot for a, for a racing boat they at that point when it was designed in 95 96 they hadn't gone all out with the big flat uh, volvo 70 type of style uh, around the world boat so you get a boat that's got pretty good, good seat keeping abilities actually and i was i was really impressed both dealing with her solo and then later on a heavy beat for 11 days coming from Iceland back to Newfoundland. Um, there was that maritime superstorm off Nova Scotia and I had to kind of track my way around that. So it was, it's pretty serious seas and pretty serious breeze and uh, not for a moment where we, we worried about the boat or particularly uncomfortable. So if you have to go cruising in crazy 90s uh, race boats, I suggest you take your maxi, not your open 60. Your maxi, huh? Wow. What's it like single-handing a maxi? That seems like an awfully large boat to single-hand. Yeah, it's look. it was for a particular reason that we had been trying to fill up the last slots in this circuit going around the Atlantic, and we couldn't fill them to a point where we had minimum crew. If you're going to run a boat like that with 
people who are newly coming onto the boat, there has to be a minimum number of them on board so they're sailing the boat. It's not a kind of presentation piece where I'm doing it for them. That wasn't what we were doing. So, so if it was less than eight on that, that boat, we really kind of couldn't do it. It was uh, we needed to have some pretty exceptional people. But what I could do is go to I do it on my own mode, which is completely different. I would never solo a boat with a, a small number of um, people on board when it's a big maxi boat like that, right? It has to be one or the other. So but yeah. not being able to build the, the full of the full trip from the UK to Iceland, we just cancelled the people that we had got, moved them to a different trip, and uh, I soloed the boat. And uh, I'd already I'd already delivered the boat down to Newport from Nova Scotia solo and brought it back up uh, solo. And um, yeah, it's... You know, it's kind of like an open 60. If, you, if you've got it in your head to solo a boat, then you're in the right space, you know, mentally. If you've got a certain amount of physicality, then you're in the right place to do that. Um, if the boat's got enough mechanical advantage in the things on board that you can do the jobs, then you're okay there. So then it just comes down to putting it all together. And you obviously you get quite good at that when you're sailing solo around the world on open 60. You just have to scale it a bit. So I'm not going to say it's easy, but I think if you've got the skill set, like any solo or shorthanded sailor will recognize once you're suited to that boat, it's not it's not impossible. But you do get some different kinds of bits of trouble, like the bit where you've got a bit too much mainsail up and there's a squall and suddenly you're doing 18 knots trying to reach away from it while you get a reef in. It's, uh, you have to think in a slightly different way. But um, it was a very safe boat. It was uh, very pleasurable to to drive through heavy weather if you can say such a thing and um yeah the so the only bit about the solo thing which is a problem is the full running backstays um and on a crude boat they are behind the traveler and most of the rest of the work you've got to do is in the cockpit so you, you then got to do quite a lot of walking around to to get things done which is not great during a jibe with a, a boat that's got a 120 foot mast so that bit i don't like but the rest of it's not not too bad yeah wow yeah, I uh, listened to your podcast as you were uh, approaching Iceland, uh, and I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the uh, format. So you were on deck with you must have had a, a headset on, and you were just describing what you were doing and and what you were seeing. Yeah, uh, that was that was a really yeah, good yeah. podcast. By the way, it's called The Mariner for for uh, the listeners. Yeah, uh, it's very, very enjoyable. It's uh, I tried to pick a name that would appeal to all sorts of different sailors because I know there's cruisers, there's racers, there's motorboat and and yachtsman you know it's um i'm kind of interested in all things on the water but uh because i've done some racing i always get seen as being a racer you know but um yeah the opportunity to take a boat and like approach a coast that i've never been to before is actually quite rare for me a lot of the times we're in the caribbean or in the mediterranean or we're doing transatlantics or you set off on one port and then come back to it because you know that that's the nature of what we do but um being able to i've never been to iceland before i never sailed that boat before it was totally new it was a, a glimpse into the world of cruising and i, I really quite liked it and I, I in trying to share it with folks uh through the through the podcast um yeah i got some really good reactions to that people uh people like that kind of stuff i guess it, if you can't go there yourself it's great to hear somebody ex exploring it th themselves firsthand through a podcast yeah it's nice i was actually on deck of my boat painting my dinghy while listening and it really painted a picture in my head of of uh, the coast of Iceland and and uh, and you uh, sort of sort of got across the emotions you feel as you're approaching a new and and that is such a wonderful thing is it to be solo on a boat and to approach a new coast that you've never been yeah. to I always get the feeling like like some place that existed only on a map before now 
is real and somehow I'm there and, and it's just kind of it just kind of amazes me that other places actually exist, even though I you know I know they exist yeah. intuitively. Yeah. But but just getting yeah. that proof that this this exotic place, Iceland, you know, really exists and here it is and it's not just on a map anymore. It's a real place. It's a exactly. strange emotion, isn't it? It it is. And it's um it's one I've kind of played with over the years because of the work I've done as, you know, like as a, as a professional sailor, I've done hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles. Most of it is just like trying to get the boat there quickly or trying to get that event completed or racing from point to point. I've not had many of these experiences and it is magical. And uh, I've been exploring that a little bit. Um, I have, I, I do another podcast where I read uh, storybooks, sailing books and, um, I'm like vicariously living through the words of these authors who are putting down their, their thoughts and their feelings. Uh, and all these books are super old because they're in the public domain. So you've got the, the thoughts and feelings of somebody approaching the Kogulian Islands in 1904 for the first time. And you realize, man, that's exactly how I feel. Like it's, uh, it's a really easy to communicate bit of uh, magic. And uh, um, I'm looking forward to doing much more of it. And uh as I said earlier, now in Nova Scotia is a beautiful part of the world. We've got Newfoundland just up the up the up the coast here, so I've I've got plenty to explore and uh, and and a great desire to do it. Yeah, you know, I spent uh, all of July and August exploring the, the exploring the south coast of Newfoundland, exploring the fjords, mm-hmm. sort of in between the Bay d'Espoir and um, and uh, Cape Lahoon. Yeah, what was the highlight to you? What should I head for? Oh, the highlights were um, Cape Lahoon, you know, Lahoon Bay, um, Devil Devil Bay was probably my favorite, uh, Aviron Bay, and those are all that one little area right around the town of uh, Franc- Francois. Mm, okay, um, interesting. Those are my favorites. Yeah, uh, Lahoon, La Aviron, and Devil Bay were were just absolutely mind blowing, outstanding. Um, also, Hare Bay, all those 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 that one little area. When you look at it on Google Earth, it kind of looks rockier than the rest of the coast. Um, mm, and it's, okay. and it's com- you know completely uninhabited. I mean, I like nature. I like raw nature, and the deeper I get into nature, the the, the more the happier I am about where I've gone. And those places were extreme. There's there's no yeah, one. It's, it's a pretty no extreme part of the of the world here. You know, I I literally didn't know anything about Nova Scotia and the east coast of Canada until I did the Clipper race in what's that like? 2010 or something i was sailing from new york to cape breton in a leg of the clipper race and uh i'm doing the nav and i'm looking at the land and it says nova scotia i think wow that probably means like new scotland like i literally never heard of it ever before yeah right me yeah and it's suddenly like uh within you know however many years couple years by no great planning I'm, i'm living here and you realize this is this is about as good as it gets you get these beautiful autumns with these fantastic changes of the leaves you get a proper winter, which for a lot of folks is something that they really enjoy and a whole new set of uh, activities to be involved in. But then the geography and the, and the, the wildness of it, then Newfoundland. And then, of course, you culturally, you've got Saint-Pierre and Miquelon, like a little French protectorate, like just off the coast of North America. There's yeah. heaps to explore here. It's, uh, yeah, I, sure I, I kind of feel sad I haven't done more to date, but, you know, I was, I was doing something else. I was in a different phase of my life. But, um, no, I'm stoked for this summer. Yeah, and you know, right close to you, you know, a day sail from you is is a Rogue's Roost. Uh, that's a place oh, that, uh, that. yeah, that? Alan Alan recommended that. It's a, it's a little it's a little anchorage, um, just just about uh, thirty or forty miles north of you on the way to Halifax. 
Okay, yeah, sure. Rogue Rogue's Roost. Uh, it's on the it's on the maps, and um, uh, Alan knows where it is. All right, and cool. Then, uh, you, yeah. yeah, and then of course the 100 Wild Islands area. Uh, that's a beautiful area. Uh, uh, I feel shelter. like somebody like in the UK. Uh, um, you know, we don't all go go visiting castles and and looking up where Shakespeare lived. You do, kind of don't see it because it's right there right. on the doorstep. Right, you I, live there. I feel yeah. a little bit like that with Nova Scotia. You're telling me about areas that are only a couple of miles from me. I've never even heard of them, so I got to get my, uh, got to get to get this sorted out. But like, it's, yeah, it's, get, a, uh, get a cruising boat and get out there. That's it. I did have a little westerly. I had a little westerly consort, um, and I put a couple videos of it on my YouTube channel. And I think I got more hits on those than anything else. So quickly, like mm-hmm. I'm more than aware of the fact that people have very little interest in the kind of boats that I sail. But it's like I sail it my job essentially right so that's that's kind of why they're presented there but uh yeah a little boat like that like five foot draft no more you can sneak into little corners I, like the open 60 draws four and a half meters it's like yeah it's like 13 or 14 foot draft like there's no gunk holding in an open 60 yeah well that's no problem in newfoundland right you're not gonna you're not gonna that's see much point. water you know you're not gonna see much water uh I, I anchored in 20 to 30 feet a few times but um even finding that yeah. is rare. You know, it's a lot of, it's mostly deep water. Where where did you go when you were in Newfoundland this summer? Oh, I only said John. So we just literally, because it's, uh, you know, we're, we're coming in with a group of um, participants on one of these trips. Um, we just came into St. John's and then Anna St. John's and, uh, and straight back here. That's it. Everything I do is like, just go in here, pick up the people, do the training, set off. Yep. There's no exploration, which... You know, that's a, a stick that I've fashioned to beat myself with. I could have set up a cruising company, but uh, it kind of, you know, it ended up being a, a, a company that had these kind of boats. So there you go. But it's, yeah. uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do it again. I fancy some cushions and some wood in a boat, not uh, carbon, carbon fiber black pits. That's not much fun. All right. Well, now, what, what do you enjoy about racing? Because you seem to be racing quite a bit, and you're going to be racing all the way around the world here next year in the yeah, Global like, Solar it's, Challenge. It's a funny thing for me. My, my background, I started out as a tall ship rigger in Hong Kong, working as a volunteer for Outward Bound and, uh, and fell in love with sailing really at 18. My dad had a boat when I was younger. I did bits and bobs and I lived on the south coast of the UK. So, you know, at school, we did a bit of sailing, but it really wasn't anything in my life at all. I was a mechanic. My father was a mechanic. I was a mechanic. I worked for Ford 30 hours a week when I was doing my A-levels. That's how I paid for what came next in my life. Um, and I took the mechanicing and a great love of climbing, which was my sport at the time. Suddenly I'm working as a volunteer. I'm on a sailing ship and they need people that can climb and go aloft. So I'm perfect. And they need people that can fix things. So great. And I fell in love with the, the voyaging and the people and the sail training and the whole kind of the tall ship thing. You know, if, you, if everybody falls for it, who's, who's got any kind of salt in their veins at all. But um, that got me into sail training. So then I kind of got uh, a little bit like a slot car, like, oh, now we're doing cell training. Like everything I did was cell training, worked for Outbound for years there, and then got the opportunity by hook and by crook to do the clipper race, which is cell training. So now I'm doing cell training, but I'm doing it in a race around the world. And uh, I knew nothing about racing. My, I did my first regatta ever in 2008. And 2009, I was skippering a boat around the world for the clipper race. And in 2010, I was sailing solo around the world in Open 60. So it's an incredible, like, upwards uh, uh, ramp, uh, really not of my own making. You Like, this is an interesting sailing challenge. You know, how far can you go? Can you keep the boat together? But it's based really on love of um, pursuing sailing as a, the, the, 
the philosophical aspects, the transformative aspects of people that are doing self-training, the, the being out there far from everywhere, the independence, self-reliance, that's what I love about it. I just kind of express it through the racing. So I'm not very quick when I'm racing, uh, to be honest. But then all the racing when uh, that came thereafter was um, all to do with having the company Spartan Ocean Racing. And really, again, we, we started the company with the idea of doing uh, cruising but when i looked at what's the best possible boat that i could take offshore that's safe for a, a crew of people i've invited on board i settled on volvo 60 because it's they're super tough there's you know they've got an amazing track record for resilience so um we started a company with these kind of boats and very quickly recognized how difficult it is to run a charter company like that and so picked some of the low-hanging fruit which was racing we had a race boat i've done some racing so let's go racing and then you turn around and suddenly it's five or six years later and you've done like all the all the Caribbean 600s for the last five years and all of the Heineken regattas for the last five years. And I'm left scratching my head thinking, I don't really <laughs> see myself as a racer, but but here we are, right? So, uh, yeah, so the next thing is is the Global Solo Challenge. So I had wanted to get a crew together to do the Ocean Globe Race. I was really... Uh-huh. About that, that's what we got the maxi for. We had people starting to sign up for that. And then the big boat division got cancelled um, and the, the opportunity just fizzled out. Um, so I've I got to say, I was a bit kind of downcast from that. I was looking at going west around the world in my Open 60. She was specifically designed for uh, upwind work by her original build skipper, Dominic Wav. Loads of reinforcement to the front of the boat uh, for that, an oversized name for that. She's got fixed keel and daggerboards deliberately for going upwind. And then I took the maxi through that super heavy patch of uh weather this october and realized wow the maxi is so much better at going upwind for a west around the world uh record attempt you don't take the open 60 if you have the opportunity take the maxi it's a much better boat so then you're thinking okay get all these boats and i don't have a company doing this kind of stuff anymore how can i what can i do with these how can i do something useful with them and i that's when the global solo challenge came across and it's like wow this is a really interesting way to do a race because i'm sure you're aware you've covered it in other uh, podcasts that it's uh it's got this pursuit element to it and for me as seeing myself as a non-racer i don't want to go back and do the same race again and again and again even if i got to do the Vendée globe i would never like go back and try and get a better position i'm just in it for the experience and for you know what it feels like to be super far offshore and have a problem and come through it and fix it and these the people that have done that kind of stuff previously in Vendée globes they're my heroes, these super independent, self-reliant sailors. They're my heroes in sailing. So I want to experience that. But um, the Global Solo Challenge had is a unique element, which is I don't think ever been, well, it has not been done before. Lots of pursuit races, but nothing like this. To be in a race that's against 36-foot boats in a an open 60, I think it's going to create one of the most exciting conclusions to a round-the-world race that, that literally we've ever seen. So... I'm stoked to be excited, but I'm doing all of that as a non-racer. <laughs> is my take on it. <laughs> well, it sounds like you love you love to sail, and and racing is just how you're able to sail. You've just sort of fallen into a yeah. becoming yeah, a racer. Yeah, it's like if you yeah, if you want to you know if you want to learn to play the piano, there will be some people that want to just play at parties, and there's some people that just tittle around, not do much, and there's some people that really want to get very good at the the action of playing the piano. And I guess I'm just one of those. If you want to get a boat. If you want to get really good at the sailing element, it's, there's a safety, there's the systems on board, there's all the self-reliance, but there's also 
how well can you sail this boat? How well do you really understand this thing that you're doing? Can you look down from above and see the, <laughs> me, the shifts and the puffs and the, the currents and the tides and, and understand how to get this machine from A to B quickly as possible? I am not one of those shouty, round-the-cans type sailors that leave, stuff leaves me absolutely cold. But uh, the, I'm competitive enough to throw myself into the situation. And then I, what I love is the bringing it together to have a successful conclusion to a, a voyage. That's that's the challenge for me. That's what I want to get out of it. Okay. how uh, I'm a solo sailor as well. And um, so we, we, we all have to deal with, you know, solo sailors, we have to deal with constant, constant situations, constant management of the boat. And sometimes things get ugly and we're tired. Um, yeah. How do you... Uh, I guess my question is, how does one and how do you develop the mental endurance that solo sailing requires? Have you ever thought about that, about how, how you or do you, do you consciously yeah. try to develop mental endurance? Yeah. So like I, uh, the people that listen to my, my podcast will have heard me speak about this before, but I, I have a book which I wrote directly after the, doing the Around the World of the and I was involved in a tricky situation with a, a relationship and I did two races back to back with only eight weeks in between twice like a hundred thousand miles in 18 months or something crazy and uh it was uh, directly during that period my dad had brain cancer and halfway down the Atlantic I had a nervous breakdown it was too much on the second trip around the world going down the Atlantic somebody emailed me and said um hey guess what you're within 60 miles of exactly where you were on this day last year and that was it. That just threw me completely out of bed. I didn't know what to make of that because I was already fighting so many forces that were external to the boat, let alone anything that I brought with me. And so I, I wrote this book and I really focused the book more on the relationship and all this kind of stuff. And then when the relationship didn't work out, as these things do, um, I had no further interest in the book. But I've been picking back over it for the last couple of years, particularly during COVID, and looking at it and thinking, is there something in here which could help people with exactly what you're talking about? This like tenacity this uh well working title is just grit right i think this element of grit is something which is perhaps seen more in sailing than many other sports i think it's in the way that people condition themselves to excel in any sport having grit to see yourself through all those hard training sessions and all the the you know the difficulties that come up when you want to excel in something but ultimately when you send yourself offshore on a boat organized not organized know what you're doing don't know what you're doing whatever it is to get through it in any way, you're going to have to have a certain amount of grit, a certain amount of tenacity. And I know that um, grit has been a kind of buzzword in uh, HR departments around the world for a couple of years now because they're recognizing that it's better to hire somebody who's got grit than, than someone potentially who's got the right qualifications because they may come and then go. Or you may get someone who's got amazing academic background, but then when you train them up, they immediately leave you. You want someone that can stick in there. And as I start to look about that, look at that book in that way, I've got my own set of stories and things that I've had that have happened to me. They're they're exciting to tell to sailors, but they'll leave most other people cold. But then I realized that, you know, we've got, say, a 10-month-old child now. Being super, super tired with little Isaac is very comparable to having to put up with what's going on the boat. When he's screaming, screaming, <laughs> and holding on to the back of your legs, you're trying to do something. That's like the boat. The boat just keeps demanding and demanding, and there's no way you cannot give it what it wants because, well, on the boat, it's your safety, and obviously with a child, that's your job as a parent. 
So I think there's all different sorts of grit. I, I think that grit, uh, I think that sailing can be used to develop it. Um, lots of good evidence from uh, doctoral theses looking at sail training and the way it has transformative effects on people. But if you're an individual that chooses to go out, shorthanded, single-handed, whatever it is, sailing has got some amazing lessons to teach you about yourself, about your ability to deal with problems, about having a, a level head in, in difficult circumstances. It's having had the experience, uh, I've, actively, I've actively tried to develop mental tenacity, having had the experience of getting to the limits of what I could do. And I, I don't uh, begrudge myself having had that breakdown. And by breakdown, I would say, if you put your, a blanket over your head and cry for three days in the middle of the Atlantic when you're meant to be racing around the world, that's what I'm denoting as being a, a mental breakdown, right? But when you get to the end of that, a bit like life, uh, you're still a thousand miles offshore. You're still going to get on with whatever it was that was there, you know, before you had the problem. But it's an incredibly cathartic process to that. And as you put the pieces back together, uh, you start to realize how these things come on and you start to develop methods to to deal with them, as you say. So like I um, I had a situation in the, in the Southern Ocean between New Zealand and um, Cape Horn where I was racing really hard against one of the other competitors, um, Brad Van Loo, who's massively experienced, had a much better boat than me but my boat had been getting quicker i'd been getting quicker and we were vying for um first place in a speed gate uh, going between 10 degrees of longitude across the southern ocean so you're going hell for leather because there's points in this which could add to your overall total for going around the world and um just as we we're getting to the end of this big squall system i've got like i know two reefs in the main and uh, the solent pulling pretty hard and we're, at this point we're doing like 20 knots um, the wind just stepped up to a point where it's like, this is getting like really dangerous. So I started to try to get the main down, but as always happens, it's really, it's just that last blow on the back of a system. If you could just see it through, you'd be okay. But it just got such a pitch. I was like, okay, I got to do something. So I started pulling the main down and it got stuck. And it got, as you know, from solo sailing, all you can do is deal with the front of the sail. The back sail's got to do whatever it's going to do. And then when the front's right, then you're at liberty to go and do something to the back of it. So if the front won't move, like it won't go down now, oh my God, it won't go back up either if it's jammed. The back of that sail is going crazy. And the mainsail is like 1,600 square feet on one of those boats. And it'd be made of something that's about the equivalent. It's it's not the same material, but it'd be like 12 and a half ounce Dacron equivalent. It's a, it's a mix, but that's the kind of weight. So it's a sail that weighs like 120, 130 kilos. And when it starts thrashing around, it's it's manic. It's crazy. It's like a machine gun going off. And then all of these massive long 14 mil Dyneema reef lines out the back of it. Like it's dangerous. It's violent. And you're already in a dangerous, violent place in a big storm. Right. So you're trying to hold yourself together through that. It blows itself out. The school passes over. And now I'm left rock and roll in the Southern Ocean with this badly damaged mainsail. And I've still got like a couple of thousand miles to go to Cape Horn before I can even go around the corner and get up to Punta del Este. So I, I set to starting to fix the mainsail and um, I, I look at it and it, I'm going to have to do a real nice stitch on this thing. I'm going to have to put some uh, really big patches onto it to make it work out. There are ways to do use adhesive on these kind of repairs, but if I'm heading to Cape Horn, I'm thinking like I'll do it properly. So I look at it, I work it out. It's going to take me 33 hours of continuous stitching by my initial guess and wow. spooling forward. That's pretty much what it took. So you're 24 hours, you haven't slept anyway because of the school. You're in the middle of the Southern Ocean. I was literally about two or 300 miles from Point Nemo. So you're in the most remote part of the planet. And uh, 
I have had a nervous breakdown, let's say two months before, something like that. So what had changed in that time is that I had developed some tactics to try and help myself deal with these situations. And I employed them at that time and I did the stitching and got the boat sailing again and moved on to Cape Horn, got around Cape Horn. There's a whole story there. But by the end of that, I had some evidence that I can hold it together in difficult times and I was able to move forward. So I had this failure, uh, rebuilding of skills, rebuilding of uh, you know my, my foundation. And then I was stronger moving on from there uh, because I knew, yeah, I might need to fall apart, but I'll use it uh, to my benefit. And then I will put myself back together. And I'll keep moving. Having that experience, which I think is very common to a lot of folks, having broke, been broken, got over it, moved through, moved on. I feel confident to take on most situations now, but uh, I'm still very fearful. I'm still filled with trepidation and doubt and all the rest of it. And it's just about trying to keep all the, all the zoo animals in the zoo in my head, you know, so, they, so I, I don't damage the, damage my chances for survival in, in such difficult circumstances. So tenacity, you know, is, uh, is like the key thing when you're out there, you've got to be able to, you've got to be ingenious. You've got to be able to rely on yourself. You've got to be practical and beneath all of it, above all of it, however you want to put it, you have to be able to hold the mental game together because, uh, that that's the one that will get you otherwise. Right. Sorry, I'm rattling on here, but this is something I feel that, (laughs) <laughs> it's a big part of it right and it's a lot of people are fearful of it but once you've done it it's like mm, okay that's what it's like to go through military training that's what it's like to go through first responder training to be able to um keep things together in circumstances where most other people would lose their heads it's uh that's a big part of sailing for me i think that's the most important part of of sailing uh offshore anyway especially for single-handers uh, or really, for, I mean, really for anyone, I think I think it is the most important uh, personal skill to be able to uh, keep things together, keep a clear head, stay focused when yeah, things are I, really getting ugly. I was going to, before I was uh, happy to become a father, I was going to email Elon and say, look, if you're going to Mars, you probably want a solo sailor because uh, you want somebody who knows not going to fall apart. You know, it's that, That's right. it's that, kind, of, that kind of mentality <laughs> is part of it. Like you watch these movies of you know ash maybe being on a boat is too removed for most folks there's not many good um movies about people on boats on their own it's kind of a you know slow game but things in space where people losing their minds that's that's pretty much what it is on a boat at sea some people hallucinate some people you know i talk to myself all the time um and i do deal with the boat like the boat is a, a living entity but that's through a very calculated sort of uh technical choice rather than being woo woo about the personality of the boat like my, my personal opinion is that it's beneficial to deal with the boat like it's a, uh, an organism that you must communicate with because it, it tickles the centers of your brain, which, uh, which, which are looking out for signals from those around you who may try and communicate. If you want to put it like that, my background originally when I went to university is linguistics is something I'm very interested in humans communicating. But if you're just dealing with a machine, then it, it, it's just got like binary sort of settings. It doesn't seem like it's something you should communicate with if it's a boat and you feel that oh she's telling me now she needs this she needs that that means your your brain's kind of like open to that kind of communication and that's the kind of brain that i see on moms who are woken in the middle of the night by a little baby crying in the next room that's people can just recognize tiny little details in communication with each other and that's what you're trying to do with the boat you're trying to get these little telltales of what's happening the structure of the mast the the way the engine sounds the way that alternator belt, belt sounds that weird hum that started somewhere 
all of these things could pass by if you start to get into too much of a daze when you're on your own weeks from land and all the rest of it. But if you deal with the boat like it's uh, an element you're trying to communicate with, it keeps you on your toes, keeps you, keeps things constant, and it keeps you talking and keeps that element of your brain engaged. And uh, I, I, I don't I don't find any issues with being lonely at sea, not because I'm talking to the boat, I mean, that's a separate issue, but it's I don't find any issues of being lonely. I'm quite happy in my own space. So I don't I don't think I'm on the roster for, for going nuts at sea, but there's certainly a lot of things that people do on boats that seem a bit woo-woo, which I would include in what I'm doing to try and uh, make sure I'm on top of every detail of what the boat's trying to communicate to me. You mentioned earlier that you had developed some techniques for for getting past uh, your your breakdown and and for develop yeah. and for developing mental endurance. Can you can you talk about any of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one thing that was given to me as a piece of advice was that your your mind is kind of like a harbor, and you're the harbor master. And um, thoughts come in like boats entering the harbor. It's something to visualize. It's uh, it's a way of kind of dealing with a very esoteric thing in your mind. And then as the harbour master, you can kind of get on your little internal VHF system and you can stop boats from coming in or you can order boats to leave the harbour. And if you start to get thoughts stuck, as happens when your sugar gets low, when you're not breathing correctly, a lot of times when we get uptight and tense, we start physiologically, we start breathing in a very manner, which um, stacks up the CO2, um, gets us feeling quite sick quite tense uh, you know you cloud your judgment when you get to those kind of points it's hard sometimes to rationalize your thoughts add to that sleep deprivation which you know people think sleep deprivation is used for torture it kind of is it's used for information extraction that's what it's often used for because people can't rationalize their emotions so you can persuade them as the interrogator that it's to their advantage and to their family's advantage or whatever to give up this critical piece of information not being able to rationalize your emotions that's the takeaway from sleep deprivation. We know already from people like um, the sleep uh, scientist, Matthew Walker, that not sleeping is extremely bad for you. Like it will come knocking in the end. So you're taking this decision to like put your health at risk, but you've got to be aware of the fact that there are some here and now physiological effects, which are going to be a problem. One of them is that you can't rationalize your emotions. You have all these crazy thoughts flying around. If you've got demons, you know, things from your past, or things that you're thinking about all the time these thoughts enter your mind they can get stuck in there and have a real negative effect we don't have to be stuck in the patterns of thinking that we think you know it's not some, we, we are not it's not an involuntary process we have some control over it so you can literally uh verbalize hey no i'm not thinking that you've got to get that out of here i'm not thinking about that at this moment i will think about that later when i've had something to eat and be very very like um, hard faced with yourself about what you're going to allow yourself to think about or not having distractions that can take you away from things which are pleasant for you like movies on your iPad or a book or whatever it is you enjoy doing absolutely but you've got to be very very proactive in it because to just sit there and be at the mercy of your thoughts might be very um, alluring when you're on a high mountain top you know somewhere <laughs> on a meditation course but when it's your third night in a storm and now you're thinking and thinking about some terrible movie or some terrible situation, you've got to do something about that. That's that's where accidents happen. That's where people get in bad situations mentally. So I'm very proactive about making sure that I can kind of control what I'm thinking about. Um, I think yeah, distractions is very important. Um, oftentimes I will limit the amount of communication that I get from the shore. So I have made this mistake a lot previously, particularly when you're in relationships, so you're trying to text or 
phone people and it's on the satellite phone and you can't hear each other properly and all that stuff starts to add up in a way that's super negative and um for me you know i can remember the relationship i was in when i was sailing through the ocean uh, through the southern ocean um uh, solo um there's times where i'm speaking to somebody and we get to the end of the conversation it's kind of like a difficult end to the conversation and then that person goes on with their life for 24 hours and i just sail a boat in the dark in the southern ocean without sleeping for 24 hours yeah. and then pick up the phone that does not make for a very positive relationship so i think being aware to, to limit that also like um you know i've always told people if, if someone cl- close by in my family dies if literally anything happens that's like could have a major effect on me you you can't tell me until i, I get sure it's one of those things that sailors have to make a decision about um, my mother was very, very ill and died two de- days before I was due to go to sea. And uh, uh, we've been on a standby, though, of if she dies when you're at sea, you know, we'll tell you when we get ashore. So what can you do? I remember my mother phoning me. My mother, obviously, is going to do whatever my mother's going to do. Uh, I can't tell her what to tell me or not tell me. So I'm in the middle of the Atlantic, uh, middle of the Pacific in a, in a hurricane. And she phones me on the boat to tell me that uh, my dad is going into surgery for brain cancer, they discovered, and he may live or die. And at that point, I'm like 12 days from anywhere in a hurricane. Like having had these experiences, you realize I've got to manage this stuff. Like you can really put yourself through a torture. So um, having a really verbose, oh, sorry, my computer making noises. Um, very verbose kind of um, way of dealing with things like speaking out to thoughts that come into your head, you know, the craziness of a solo sailor on their own, but it's uh, doing that deliberately to try and uh, kick these things out of your head, having good distractions that you're really confident with, that you enjoy that are going to be away from it, um, limiting how much uh, uh, information can come onto the boat and then being, Oh, I guess there's two other things. Recognizing firstly that um, you're in this amazing position where if you, step outside the boat you die it's like so obvious to say but you're in this moment of like balance between life and death where if you if you stumble if you fall if you're not clipped on something happens silly mistake you're going to go from wet to dead in like well it depends on the water temperature right so you're in this amazing place of being able to really recognize what's important and what's not important there's lots of positivity to to live in in that in that decision on the other hand the boat a bit like uh, a screaming child will not let you um, step away from the controls for too long particularly if you're trying to race particularly if you're in uh, shipping lanes or coastal or whatever it is that is a very hard pull that that pulls on you all the time like safety 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 people who don't know about sailing will say to me um you know how do you how do you wake up when you're on a boat at sea and um trying to do this uh, 20 minutes on 20 minutes off thing whatever it is for for solo sailing it's like thinking you're going to die is a really good alarm clock. And that's kind of a flippant answer to, to folks who don't understand it. But it's, uh, it is true. But that means that, you know, during most of your sleep period, you have this nervousness on you. And then you have the nervousness of what do we need to do next? And that boat, when she's got all of her downwind sail up, she's getting on for like, I don't know, she's probably 6,000 square feet, something like that, with a really big kite and staysails up. Um, going upwind in, in heavy weather, you know, is the next wave going to be the one that shakes the mast out of the boat? Or if you're in a coastal situation, is there a ship going to come around the corner that doesn't see my lights while I'm sleeping? Like all these things are on your mind all the time. Recognizing that and actively engaging in the battle and having some tactics that you deal with, I think is something that um, can make it so much more pleasurable and then open up the real possibilities for personal development that exist in 
challenging yourself to sail solo. Do you meditate? Um, no, I, I would say this. I have uh, to meditate is to pause oneself in the day and take stock of where you're at, at the, the largest scale and the smallest scale, right down to your breathing, your place in the universe and your existential anxiety about being in the world. Just go sailing on a race boat. You'll get all the existential <laughs> threat you want and lots of time to think about uh, anything you want to think about. It's it's one of those things, right? So uh, sure, I do. You know what I think I do? I think I like micro meditate. Is that a thing? Is that a moment where you're, you can Well, just it is stand? now. Oh, okay, well, there you go. Well, 10% each, right? Um, the I think it's one of those things that you can just have a moment. It's the cup of tea. It's the, you know, we don't smoke anymore, right? But there used to be that moment where you just have a cigarette and just go, man, wow, I'm alive. This is great. A cup of tea or a cup of coffee serves the same thing. It's often best when you're with other folks, but on your own, just having that moment to completely relax, release the stress and, and move forward is I think very, very beneficial in anybody's everyday mental health um, on a boat at scene, being rec recognizing the pressure you're under and, and allowing yourself those moments of contemplation. Uh, maybe they can't be very long, maybe they're very broken up, but catching little moments of it and really recognizing it and holding on to that, I think is 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 key to, uh, to, to be able to hold yourself together and, and enjoy the process. Otherwise you end up just loathing the boat and loathing the next port and loathing the race and, there's a lot of very grumpy sailors out there for whom it all seems to be a, a terrible chore, whatever part of it is they're involved in. It's like, man, it's a really joyful pursuit to, to, to rob it of that by not managing yourself properly. <laughs> it's a little sad. Yeah. Well, let's, let's get, um, let's go the other way around and get completely positive next. Then uh, can you hmm. describe one of your favorite moments while at sea? Oh, okay. That's a good one. Uh, it can be any, any of them. It doesn't have to be your favorite. Just one of just a, just a nice one that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, as I, as I think about something more meaningful, I, I will share with you that um, there was a long period of time where I um, stopped going on the foredeck to look at dolphins. I think I played the part of the crotchety, curmudgeonly old sailor humorously a few times, and then it kind of stuck. And when you're doing these charter trips where you play the same jokes every time with every crew. Like you can imagine that's how it goes. You start to realize like, no, I actually am becoming the commercially <laughs> grumpy old. I used to joke and say to people, scare them away, scare them away. They'll try and bite the propeller off. You know, all these silly things that uh, just to you know, keep a, a moment of levity in the day. But the uh, just walking forward and seeing dolphins sometimes can be one of those like micro meditation moments where you just go, wow, this animal is like here with me like what's the rest of its life like when it stops playing with me what's its experience of the world just those very gentle moments and i guess allied with that is that on the um the race boats because they're so stripped out you can you can really hear the dolphins through the hull so you might be in the middle of some terribly awful situation and you realize man there's dolphins outside this boat like all of these things that we get ourselves so worked up about at the end of the day there's dolphins just outside the hull like what a what a joy right but um Favorite moment to me, I guess the the starting of my of my uh, sailing career was on this tall ship called uh, Chi Fung, which is a bit of an ugly pig of a boat, but um, she was based on a, a hull design which was quite modern, really. She was uh, built in '82, and uh, so she was very good in tall ships races. She was very uh, competitive. We had a very competitive and skilled captain. So my first big experience of going offshore, like 18, 19, whatever I was was on a tall ship doing a tall ships race from Hong Kong 
around Taiwan to all the islands of Japan and finishing up in Osaka, and we won it. So the entire thing from front to back was just this magical opening of this whole new world that I had previously known nothing about. So those kind of voyages, I think, would be something that I would always smile about. Um, I think one of the... Uh, I think getting around Cape Horn was a moment which uh, really surprised me. There was a, a particular moment as I was approaching Cape Horn where I had, I, when you when you approach Cape Horn in the Southern Ocean, you have to commit to it from about 1,500 miles away. The way that those big systems come rolling in um, from the west there, you can see them coming forever on the on the satellite, of course, and uh, on your ribs. And you're, you're looking at it and thinking, okay, I'm going to dive south now, but I'm going to dive south uh, along the edge of a geographic boundary. And if a big storm comes rolling in at the exact moment I'm making this approach to the horn, then the normal method for escaping from uh, a big westerly storm in the, in the Southern Ocean is to go north. You just get out of it. You get go to the north out of the way of it. You can't do that when there's rocks to the north of you. So you commit to the horn, looking at the weather and thinking, I think I can do this. You want to go down there with as much wind as possible because you're racing, but like not too much wind. So I had made my approach. I was aware that my main soil had been damaged. Um, but within like 50 or 60 miles of uh, of the plateau at Cape Horn, um, the, the storm which I'd been using the front edge of to propel me forward, like I had ended up 500 miles behind the fleet. And by the time I got to Cape Horn, a couple of thousand miles later, I was like, 300 miles behind. And by the time I got to Punta del Este, I was in second place, right? So I was going really hard, as hard as I've ever gone. And uh, this storm, like, started to come in on top of me. So now I'm in a situation where I've got, like, 45 knots, and it's new swell at the horn right on the plateau where it goes from 2,000 metres deep to 50 metres deep. It's, like, the worst possible case mm -hmm. scenario. And uh, the boat started to get into a couple of, like, lunges where I thought, okay, she, she might pitch pole here. You're at you're on the, the nav station seat and like all of the shit in the boat starts falling vertically down the boat. You start to realize, okay, the boat's nearly up on its nose and uh, we've got way too much wind here, but there's no way I can reef. There's no way I can do anything. I just have to blast out in front of this storm. And, uh, and it worked and it worked. And literally as it, as the storm halted in it's uh, eastward travel up against the, the, uh, the east, it paused there for about 12 hours. It gave me time to go around the horn in, in relative leisure. And so it literally went from storm, and I'm not sure I'm going to survive this, to uh, half an hour of flat water, and then the lighthouse at Cabo de Hornes blinking in darkness, and I could turn to port and come up out the Southern Ocean. So that moment, you know, you're like, I, I survived. I'm here. So I think those kind of moments is the things I clutch out of the sailing that I'm doing because I'm not doing – the gunk holing and the meeting up with other people and the parties on board and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, the things I'm trying to do as I get a bit older and get a bit smarter. But um, these, these moments, these like climactic pinnacle moments can be, can be incredibly nerve wracking, but incredibly joyful when you realize I've done it, you know, I've, I've got this boat across the Southern ocean and I can take a breath now and, and, and turn up into the Atlantic. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I've done a lot of sports besides uh, sailing, like Sorry, surfing and like surfing and mountain biking. And uh, the, the the feeling you just described was always one of my favorites. Uh, when when you're right on the edge of disaster, yeah, and then you pull through and everything's great. It's like you know you get that surfing all the yeah. time, um, you know. Yeah. And then uh, 
you know, mountain biking as well. Those are all my fa- my favorite feelings. Like you almost wipe out on a fast downhill on a mountain bike, but you pull it off and you make it out. Yeah, of course it's it's, it's a you know magnified uh, when that happens sailing. Um, it's kind of like any situation where it's like you know you I, I think mountain biking man the the wipeouts you can have in mountain biking they're pretty epic right so I think where the sound where you've really got skin in the game like literally your own skin in the yeah. game and you come on through there's certain people for whom that that speaks to I don't get that with a win in racing I like almost couldn't care less with a win in racing which is not to take anything away from it because but I think when you win if you win and it's luck or you win against a hugely competitive field. Um, there's a feeling like, wow, I really, really did it. But when you're on a charter boat and the only ways that you can win is mostly by lucky, you know, lucky turns of the dice in the kind of racing I've been doing, there's not much joy in a win there. You're like, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of takes something from it a little bit. Maybe it's just the other, the competitors mix, mixed up their, their jibe set or something or they went the wrong way or whatever. Now one, I'm, I'm searching that out now with the things that I'm doing with doing the digital content, um, I can take the boat and go and do the sailing that I want to do. Like on my podcast, I don't swear. And in my business world, the things that I'm doing, I don't swear. But in real life, I do. So it'd be nice to be able to do some content where I can just be myself. You know, <laughs> everyday life, I would like to go and, I know, dry out on a, in some little harbor in, the, in Newfoundland or something and find out what that's about. But I can't really do that when I'm working, doing the stuff I'm doing. So there's an incredible opportunity coming up to just, just go and do the stuff that will give me joy. That will give me mm-hmm. those highs that you're talking about. And I, I suspect they will be by being in some of the incredible places that are available to me around here that we talked about at the beginning, like going and seeing yeah. glaciers, going into these incredible fjords. Like I think those are the moments. And of course, all of the social interactions and all of the fun that goes with that stuff, which is just not possible in my, hasn't been possible in my normal everyday life up to now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just, um, the feeling you described of, of rounding the horn, you know, I, I had a, a similar one uh, as I was leaving Newfoundland. Yeah. Just, just the fact that I had, I had gotten there and, you know, and I've only been sailing um, since uh, 2016. Uh, oh, right, so it, yeah. hasn't, oh. it hasn't even been that long, yeah, but just, just, this is great. <laughs> yeah. Just, so just getting to Newfoundland yeah. doing it, and then, and then getting out of there alive was, was, yeah. a, was just such a wonderful feeling to me. And, and on top of that, I had, uh, about a 10 pound bag of frozen moose in my refrigerator oh, yeah. that somebody had just given me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got given a load of moose sausages on the dock in, uh, in Newfoundland. It's uh, those people are so kind. They're so lovely. It's uh, it's hard not to make friends there. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was so, you know, as I was exiting the, 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 the you know, the Island, um, the bag full of moose, my, my, my uh, goal of, of uh, going there and, and uh, exploring was successful. That was a wonderful yeah. moment for me. Yeah, um, it's sailings like that. It doesn't matter if you. I think sometimes it's saying like, "Oh, you've got a sixty foot boat or an eighty foot boat." Like, whoa, it's totally different. It's exactly the same. It's just it's a lot more walking about. It's you know, for me, the boats that we have with a company like this, it's kind of like if you owned a fishing boat. It's a working boat. It does what it does. Um, but it's uh, the sailing offers the similar challenges at every level. If you're on a twenty foot boat racing sure. it or cruising it, if you're on a hundred foot boat, it's kind of a it's kind of the same. A lot of the principles really apply. And never has that been more sort of um, put home to me than reading these um, books from around the turn of the uh, start of the 20th century. I've read one called The Cruises of the Hippocampus, and they're going, they're cruising down the coast of the US at a time 
where he describes Miami as being like a one horse town with a post office and a place wow. you can buy milk pops. Right? It's that kind of thing. It's like, there's nothing going on there. It's just all swamp. And they are having the same, there's a bit I, um, I read, uh, I, I laughed when I was reading it. So when I'm reading these books and it, a certain part makes me laugh or have you, I pull out the, um, I pull out the bits that made me laugh and then I put it in a separate file where I put them all together. And the file is labeled in case of uh, um, lack of, um, in, ca- in case of loss of uh, sense of humor. And uh, the point <laughs> is, if you're having one of those days, you've got to have like something in the bank that you can just go to. And uh, it made me laugh because they are, he says to his steersman, this is like 1904 or something. No, what is it? No, I tell a lie. It's, um, it must be 1920, this one, if I get it right. Okay, they've just, yeah, they've gone through the First World War. So it's 1920, they're on this little, little boat and they're sailing off the US uh, East Coast. And as he goes to sleep, the skipper says, uh, try not to put any easting in the course. So is that right? No, he try not to put any west in the course. Try not to put any west in the course. They're on the east coast of the US. He doesn't want to go any west. Well, when he wakes up in the morning at the end of the, this guy's watch, they can't see the land. They can't see anything. And he's like, well, let's just, we'll, we'll head west and maybe we'll find America, right? Just his turn of phrase as he's uh, talking about it made me laugh at the time. I realized I've done that so many times where you, you know, you give some of the instructions on a watch and then you come back at the end of the watch and you're way off course. It's like the, 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 the way the sailing goes down has been the same for hundreds of years. It's the same when you're beginning it, when you're more advanced at it. Um, if it's big boats, crude boats, that's the joy of it. It's these very simple things, these simple pleasures like arrival in a new place, the challenges of trying to get a wet sail on board. We all know what it's about. We can all communicate those things to each other. And, uh, it's it's timeless it's uh you've got you've got so many great places to go and and explore what's what's next for you well i'm heading to back to the bahamas next and then probably back to panama so two places i've already been next you know next for me is is two places that i've already been and that i know i love and that are warm you know it's been winter for me since march like (laughs) it's been like a non-stop like canada in the summer is winter by my standards like a cold winter yeah yeah, so, I remember um, when I first uh, came here in 2013, um, uh, I was asking the neighbor for a shovel when I arrived back at my house one day, having been to a, a boat show in Vancouver or something. I was there in flip-flops and, and shorts, having just got out of a taxi, and there was snow like three feet deep. <laughs> I was so clueless. I had not had a winter for 10 years. We're living in the tropics, in Australia, and all these places. I hadn't seen any temperatures below 5 or 10 Celsius in literally 10 years. So I went to the neighbor, it's like, do you have anything that I could use to like move the snow? And she's like, you mean a snow shovel? I'm like, yeah, that sounds right. Like I was totally kidding. So I am not a yeah. cold weather person. I've gotten used to it now. I see there's a lot of humility in, uh, in digging your driveway and then a lot of joy in getting help from your neighbors and community and all the rest of it. Like there's a lot to be said for hard living, but I'm definitely more conditioned to, to, to warm, uh, warmer climes. It's something that I'm working on actually, because um, in my podcast, you know, we do a lot of stuff about safety and I've been looking at this excellent book um, from the RWA called um, the Sea Survival Handbook. And uh, we've been looking at cold water and the physiological effects of going into cold water, like what happens next. And as part of that, I um, went through the um, safety investigation over the man overboard during the recent Newport Bermuda race. A chap called Colin Golder lost his life in that mm-hmm. race. And they've gone through like what had happened and I included it and we looked at it. And I, and I was in that race and I wasn't too far away from where Colin was. I was also the skipper of the boat. And we had a couple of incidents on that one where I got the kite was wrapped around the force day at the same time that the van blew itself off the bottom of the mast. 
uh, in oh, a school in an 80 foot boat, right? That kind of situation. And I thought, wow, I could have like, I could have gone overside in that. That's come, that's, you know, understandable. And then you think, you know, how would that actually go for me? I kind of had this um, like far away kind of idea of like, oh yeah, if I went in the water, wow, I'd be so angry at myself. We have these sort of things. We start to realize that the reality of what would happen there's some circumstances where being able to handle the cold water might be the difference between life and death, particularly if you're on a crude boat. And then I started realizing, wow, even the temperature of water there offshore from Newport, where Colin went in, once we started looking at this sea survival handbook, you know, by the time you're an hour in, you're going to be hypothermic, whichever way you go, because you lose heat so much quicker in the water. So it started me thinking like, what is my resistance to, to cold weather because I really don't like cold water or anything to do yeah. with going cold water. So slowly over time, I've been over, over time over the last couple of weeks, I've been getting into like cold showers and cold showers. And now we started doing like uh, on New Year's Day, we did a polar plunge in five Celsius water here at oh, the house. And the yeah. idea is to start doing that more and more because what I, yeah. I you know, I, I like, I, I push for these things that I've done. The Southern Ocean is very cold. I can remember being very cold down there and that being a, an impediment to what I'm doing. I'm not expecting to swim after an open 60 if I go off the back. Like, I get it. But um, who, who knows where it, it may come in, in useful for me in my sailing life. I do lots of other sailing as well, right? So I started to realize on that day, the first time we did that polar plunge, um, I couldn't swim any further. You know, I did two or three strokes. I cannot physically swim any further. And yet I... Yeah. The Southern Ocean will regularly see water temperature that's five Celsius. That's a very critical number because below that there's a there's a risk of ice, right? So we're looking at the, the whole temperature all the time. And um, five degrees, like I can't swim three strokes in that at the moment. That's my reality. So the cold and my uh, approach to it is having to change a lot at the moment. And uh, it's interesting getting feedback from my listeners. You start to realize. You know, like I'm 45 years old. I'm I'm middle-aged man. I've watched probably far too many Marvel movies and have a vastly inflated idea of what I can and cannot do. And the, <laughs> the reality mallet of realizing I cannot swim more than two or three strokes uh, before I have physiologically undeniable urge to get back to the shore. That that's a bit of a you know that's a worry. So uh, I'm I'm trying to work on my winter skills. You should come back, man. You can help me with it. It'd be great. You'll love it. Uh, yeah come up there and do some some ocean swimming in the, in the winter <laughs> no i i totally get your your concept though um i i've i have done some ocean swimming in the winter in florida um mm -hmm. wearing a wetsuit but even with a wetsuit on jumping yeah, into yeah. water that's that's 50 degrees uh is shocking and right. it's a shock to your system yeah. and yeah. your whole body can start to shut down i, I had an experience um and this is with a wetsuit on you know, and goggles, <laughs> uh, running out with the lifeguards and, you know, in Florida in the winter and, and jumping into the water and um, the water was yeah. in the low fifties, um, which is probably the, um, uh, that's probably in the, the 10, 11, 12, 13 yeah. Yeah. Celsius, somewhere around there. Sure. And I remember one time, you know, it was, it was rough water and we're jumping in and trying to swim and, and my body just sort of went into shock. I yeah. got an ice cream headache. Yeah. Um, my, my goggles fogged up my, my chest started contracting <laughs> and I'm like, I remember, yeah. I remember having this thought, like, this is, this is how people drown. This is, this is oh, what yeah. happens right before someone drowns, their body starts malfunctioning and there's nothing you can Absolutely. do about it. And I had a wetsuit on. Yeah. This is it. Like, like most people that die of 
very surprised that it's happening to them. That, that's the reality, right? It's not like there's not many people that like go walk into it and know what's happening. A lot of people with accidents or health issues, it's a very big surprise. And uh, the, yep. the thing for me with the, the reason I kind of got onto this this year, I had to do some work on the mooring when I got back with the maxi. I came into the bay and I got my partner, Kat, stood on the dock with our little one who I hadn't seen for three months. And it was this lovely like moment where I could, you know, hey, I'm back and I'm soloing this boat into this little bay. And I got there and the flipping mooring had sunk. So then I had to like go into this mess of getting the anchor out and all the rest of it, which is a real hassle on a race boat. There's no cleats, no windlass, the anchor's all below deck. So it totally mashed yeah. up the whole thing. So shortly after getting back, I had to go in the water. So it's October in Nova Scotia. I'm sure the water temperature was north of 10 oh, Celsius, close to like 15 or 16, right? It's like as warm as it gets here. But down beneath the water, and that mooring's in 50 foot of water. Oh, gosh, uh, it's a massive thermal cold. line down and, there. And uh, yeah. I haven't been in cold temperatures for a while. Oh, absolutely. And it's uh, the other thing is, like a lot of the diving that I do, I've done like 200, 250 dives by now. I've only ever twice dived in open water, uh, like looking for fish and stuff like that. I am always under boats. That's all I've ever done. I like literally oh. freak out if I get out from under the boat, like something's wrong, right? So um, <laughs> I'm... I'm getting my, my gear on and um, what had happened, there was, uh, I'd lost, lost my good mask. So I had my bad mask. I had got a mustache at the time. So I won't get a proper seal. I've got my old wetsuit, not my new wetsuit. So it's a bit too tight. All these little, little things, all these little red flags until I yep. finally got ready, jumped in the water and almost had like a panic attack because I'm constricted. I can't move properly. It's super cold, much colder than I was expecting. It's dark, it's cold. It's all these things. And, you know, some of the things we talked about earlier on of like calming your mind, breathing, just trying to relax yourself down. These are absolutely critical for survival in these kind of acute situations. Um, but I could in that moment recognize the major factor here is the cold. And that's something I have no resistance to at all, or I have lost any resistance I ever had. So in that moment, it's like I need to I can deal with it. I can I can sort that problem out. Most of the rest of it I couldn't. But. You know, what if you're trying to get into, well, on, in my stuff, we have these big, thick um, neoprene uh, once-only suits, you know, the, the survival suits. And yeah. um, you get in you get in that sucker, you can't do much. If you're then trying to get a life raft out the back of the boat in super cold uh, conditions, or if, God help you, you're trying to save somebody else, or do, if it's the cold that's the thing that's going to prevent you being successful in that situation, to me, I have to do something about that because I'm often in cold water, but... It's, right. uh, it's a real mental block for me. It's a very, very challenging. But you know, I, I listen to the Joe Rogan podcast and, uh, and enjoy the, the, the content there from these people that are coming up and talking about the benefits of uh, cold plunge and um, the, the beneficial yep. effects it can have. So I, I see there there's something I can do that uh, can be beneficial for my health as well. So I'm, I'm challenging myself, but um, yeah. <laughs> It's not something I want to do, man. I would rather be in Florida and beyond with, with you. That sounds much better. <laughs> well, you know, this and this is this is a, one of the topics I wanted to get get into today. Um, and this is why I was asking you about uh, how you uh, develop mental endurance earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. Developing cold tolerance is one of many things that we as sailors can do, uh, not only to uh, for safety reasons, but also just for confidence. Yes. So I I, I started. Uh, yeah, I started. Uh, uh, ocean swimming with the lifeguards in St. Augustine yeah. a few years back because I wanted, among other things, I wanted I wanted more confidence uh, offshore in a sailboat, and and it and it absolutely works. Just just being able to swim for a mile or or, or two miles 
two miles is the farthest yeah. I've ever swam. But but now when two I'm miles, offshore, yeah, that's that's a long way, yeah. But uh, but now when I'm offshore and I'm looking at land, yeah. if I can see land, I think to myself, you know, if I had to, I could swim to it. And I, and I know I can't if I'm within two miles, yeah. but if, but it just it just adds to your confidence. And sometimes that's all you need to feel comfortable when you're offshore. And and developing cold water tolerance is going to, if nothing else, it's going to make you and anyone else that does it uh, just more confident and more comfortable uh, yeah. when you're offshore. Yeah. My, my, I spent uh, six years working for Outbound in Hong Kong, so I had an opportunity at that time. And I was younger when I was doing it, so I was dealing oftentimes with a lot of people, 40s, 50s. And I, I would look at them and think, God, how did your like life get so small? How did your idea of your physical abilities, and indeed your physical abilities, get so small to a point now where going for a hike or being in a tent is like a big deal for you, right? It's just a nothing when you're in your early 20s and doing that all the time as I was. But having... Yeah seeing people change and then recognizing in myself, Hey, I'm 45. And like, I don't want to go in cold water and I'm not, I'm not walking to the pub. I'm going to go in the damn car. You know, all these things that we start to do, you start to realize how that creep starts to happen, how you start to end up. We all yeah. know as older people that we're still pretty much the same in our heads as we ever were when we're 20. And so I think we have a, a potentially for a sailor, very dangerous idea about what it is that you can and cannot, <laughs> cannot do. Right. <laughs> So Absolutely. I, I see this all the time when people come on the big boats. Yeah, a lot of people come on the big boats, so 60, 70, 80 foot boats. And um, the way that Spartan worked, we people were involved in every element of it. Had three days training before we left the dock, one full day of safety gear. Once we get on the water, they're doing everything. So people are not just grinding it like, yay, we're doing some corporate sailing. You know, they're, they're grinding things like all through their watches during the nights. So we weren't racing, but we did, we did work. Sail changes big conditions on deck and and you start to realize a lot of people are like kit and weak uh, they have an idea of what they think <laughs> they can do uh but they can't do it and they they're they're in pieces and i remember one chap really really nice guy very passionate sailor very knowledgeable sailor very skilled dinghy sailor in tears at the end of the uh caribbean 600 okay a lot of wine might have been involved but he was in tears he said for 30 years i've been looking at the vendee globe and thinking if I could get one of those boats, I could show these people a thing or two and just four days of doing real actual sailing on a, on a, a Volvo 60 as that was uh, around the Caribbean 600 course was enough for him at 50 odd to realize or 60 odd perhaps to realize, wow, I'm like completely disconnected from reality. This is not what I thought it was at all. So I'm, I'm actively all the time trying to look for, I'm not like a fitness fiend or anything else. I'm not in that phase of it yet. I think I'm in the phase of just waking up to the fact that, um, if I'm not careful, I, I could end up one of those people yeah. who I was looking down on at 25 as an out-of-bound instructor. Not looking down on, but 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 looking at askance and saying, how did you get to this point? You know, why yeah, can't you get in cold water? Why can't you jump off this fight with the jetty? It's um maybe I wouldn't do those things now. I don't know, and I don't want to be that person. So I'm I know for I'm I'm very strong in my upper body because of the, the, the work that I do. So I know. I can climb up the rigging on the maxi to the first spreader. If I absolutely had to in an absolute disasterable situation, and I know that because I practice it and I do it, and I know now I can do three strokes in the water, but I will extend that out until I can, until I can do that. I know I can stay awake for 72 hours if I have to, but it's very dangerous to do it. Like you start to build up knowledge of what you can and can't do, but it's, it's hard one. And uh, you can't rely on anything that you could do when you were like when I was, 
when I was doing all that stuff at Outbound, we did this uh, Australian surf lifesaving uh, qualifications as surf lifesavers. It's a pretty high qualification for getting people out of the surf, which is kind of stuff that we'd be doing. But there's no way I could pass that now. But there's a part of me that still thinks I could, right? And that could be extraordinarily dangerous on a boat at sea. Sure, I can pull a sail in. Sure, I can grind that to the top before it blows up. Whatever it is, you know, you have to keep on top of what your actual skills are, your actual abilities are, and keep pushing them outwards. I think we don't uh, we don't stop moving because we grow old. We grow old because we stop moving, right? So for, yeah. for sailors, yeah, you've got a you got a very realistic idea of what you can and can't do, and uh, be pushing it outwards all the time. Yeah, absolutely. It's easy to get delusional um, about about yeah. what we're capable of, and uh, and, I, and I remaining. Marvel, man. <laughs> what do you know? You play Marvel? Yeah, sure. Everybody wants to be Spider Man or Superman. I play Marvel. Though. Yep. I, but what, the thing what, is, you, watch, you think that's like sixteen odd films, and I've watched them all. I love it. In fact, there might be more than that now. But I remember when I showed my daughter them, it was like a series of this is the ones we're going to watch. It was sixteen. It's like hours and hours and hours, and you watch these people doing these completely unbelievable things. And there must be an element of us. It's like, yeah, sure, yeah, of course you could do that. It's like you get on a boat, like all my sails are very heavy, as you might imagine, right? The the mainsail yeah. on the open sixty. I swapped the mainsail on the open sixty when I brought it back from France at sea, and that's a two hundred kilo sail. Um, and you're rolling that around the deck and trying to cut battens from all the rest of it. It's on on my uh, YouTube channel, and it's uh, you think, yeah, sure, I can do that, and you get into the reality of it. It's like it took twenty hours to change the sail, right? So. Um, having that and understanding how long things take and how strong you are and what your endurance is and what you can take that, I guess that's another thing towards developing that tenacity that we were talking about at the beginning, right? You know what you can do. Um, and you, and yeah. you're forever going to stretch it further. Do you surf? I do not know. I do not. Uh-huh. Um, that's something that I feel like, uh, also helped prepare me for, for sailing. Um, and I'm, yeah. and I'm and I'm oh. and I'm getting into these things just because I know some of the listeners are are just getting into sailing and want to uh, oh, sure. you know, want to want to train and figure out how to well you know. Uh, well, I guess I could, I could I could pull a, an example from that from something I was listening to. Um, was it Kelly Slater that was on the Joe Rogan podcast? I think it was him. He, the, whoever it was, he was a big wave surfer from Hawaii. Sorry for my ignorance, um, but. Uh, Rogan was saying to him, you know, what happens when you go into these waves? Like what's, what's next? And cause it, it just looks like death on a stick. Right. And he was yeah. explaining the kind of forces that are involved and, uh, and the training that he does for it. And what he was explaining was that he will uh, go to the pool and um, he works with a trainer and uh, almost like without any uh, warning at all, the trainer will like dunk him underwater and then, you know, he'll try and stay down underwater as long as he can. But the trainer will turn him and push him and roll him and wrestle with yeah. him underwater. And the trainer goes back and comes back down and wrestle with him some more and more um, to get him used to doing all that stuff underwater, to get him used to the fact that you might not have any air in your lungs when you go under, to get used to an extreme physical bout of activity all done underwater with no preparation at all, which sounds like, well, it sounds like SEAL training. It sounds pretty hideous. But they're specifically identified that for him to be confident to ride those big waves, the data has shown that they're normally underwater for no more than two minutes. So he knows at that point when he was talking to Rogan that he can be pushed underwater with no warning at all and he can hold his shit together for a minute and 45 seconds. So the answer to the question of 
what happens when you go off the board is I put my plan into action, but he's putting a plan into action, which lesser surfers are taking big waves on in Hawaii, then you probably have got your own version of the plan, right? But it's certainly from the layman's point of view, they're not just getting tussled around underwater. These are people who have trained for this to be able to do this. Otherwise, yeah, it's it's suicide, right? So I think sailings like that is that it might end up that in situations, you know, I've been up the mast dealing with issues on boats in 50 knots with the mainsail going berserk and, and jiving and jiving, jiving, getting thrown around the forestay and onto that. I've been there and done it with a lot of situations. So it's like, I can do this. I can do that. I've got a plan for this. I've got a plan for that. That's experience. Right. And I think uh, sailing is one that um, some of the things are very simple, like getting used to cold water uh, like knowing how to fix the engine. Some of them are a bit more esoteric, like dealing with your your own mind and making sure people don't send bad news into the boat. Um, and the rest of it, you just have to kind of grind it out and and find your way of doing it. It's uh, that's what I love about sailing. Yeah, like you know, there's so there's many like, games yep. going on. There are, you know, and so many different aspects of my my pre sailing life have come into play as a sailor. Like I used to be a carpenter. Mm -hmm. And, oh, um, yeah. you know, a, a surfer and, uh, and I'm a free diver and, oh, uh, wow. yeah. and I was a bicycle mechanic and just, yeah, just so, so many, yeah, so many little things now uh, come because you have to be such a jack of all trades to, to you be do. a sailor. You have to, you have to approach problems with, uh, there's a British comedian, Eddie Izzard, and he's, he has a skit where he's talking about the fact that some people have like technophobia and some people have techno joy. And if you're going to seriously think about sailing offshore shorthanded or on your own, you better have techno joy. There is no point being in a situation where you're nervous to open something up. Like everything has yeah. to be on the menu for you. The inside of the engine, the inside of the electronics, the inside of yourself, yeah. whatever it is, you got to be able to do it. And uh, and if you cannot, if you cannot think, if you cannot convince yourself that you have some level of expertise in an area, it's time to find that and go and read and, and learn about it. And, and I guess this, and I'm not trying to pack out my own stuff here, but that's another reason why I decided to start reading these uh, older sailing books. I got donated this incredible uh, library by a local sailor here in Nova Scotia called Rudy Hasey. His son, he, Rudy passed away and his son, Bruce Hasey is a family friend. And uh, <clears throat> he was asking me like, you know, what can we do with all these books that my dad collected? Like a thousand sailing books. Oh my God. So what would you do? <laughs> I was like, well, you're you going to give them to me. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I did. So, um, and you don't know what you're going to get. It could be, uh, it could have been a real connoisseur of books. You, you could have been into stuff that you're not interested in. So, but it looks like my interests were much aligned with Rudy Hazzy's and uh, sure. these, these wonderful books. And within them is so much knowledge. And I, I'm on my own podcast, I've shared with people that I think from, uh, to like the, from being 20 to 30, whatever years that ends up being, I 1997 is like 2007, somewhere like that. I didn't, I very, very, uh, uh, like I deliberately did not read anything other than sailing nonfiction, right? It was like, it was like, this is how I'm going to get good at this thing. And me too. Say again, sorry. I said me too. When I was getting started, oh, cool. I read 30 right. or 40 That's books it. in a row, all sailing That's nonfiction. It. Because it's right there, right? You've got, firstly, you've got all of the technical details of what they are able to share with you, which is great. You've then got, if they're a good author, insights into like, yeah, how they dealt with mental stuff, how they dealt with emotional stuff, 
But then because they're probably a kindred spirit, because A, they went and did the sailing and B, they felt enough about it to like write about it. Um, you suddenly like get like this mate, like this crewmate who passed away a hundred years ago, who's chatting to you as someone who chats to you now and can pass on a piece of information that could be super, super useful. Like the first time I went through a hurricane in the Pacific, I mentioned earlier, um, we, we had set, we had 70, no, we had like 45 knots for 10 days and uh, over 70 knots for three days. Um, we were, it, it, it blew, man. This same thing was the size of the Pacific, right? The, to, to give you an idea, we were <laughs> in a fleet of 10 68-foot racing boats, which had been around the world multiple times with the Clipper race. They've all got 20 crew on board. And um, one of the boats was badly rolled, dismasted, and one of the crew seriously injured. Another boat had the helmsman stuffed through the wheel. The another one had two people swept overboard with the same wave that washed the companionway off and flooded the boat. Like it was, it was tough going. And um, we'd been knocked down just off of Japan, and uh, uh, a hole in one of the drain pipes from the built-in life raft containments went through the back of the nav station. And unbeknownst to anybody, it was cracked. And when we got knocked down, and the that area of the boat was underwater. It just spewed into the nav station and just shorted everything out. So with my techno techno joy engaged, I started taking apart all of the satellite uh, communications gear and dried it all out. And after three or four days, we were able to get the iridium up and going and start to communicate with the world. Whereupon was met with this barrage of emails that had been sent to me saying that this storm, which was ahead of us in the Pacific, had enlarged considerably, like really mm. bombed. And um, we were like heading directly for it. And one of the skippers. Um, was uh, smart enough to send me like, here's the center. I think you've had a problem and I'm wondering if you've lost communications was his line. And he sent me, here's the center of the storm. This is the direction it's tracking. These are the size of the concentric rings. And these are the wind speeds at those concentric rings. So you can mark it on a chart if that's what you've got, like genius, right? So I was able to see that we were a hundred miles closer to it than anybody else. But um, we were exactly in phase with the waves. We had got a really solid setup on deck where we had the mo the boom was already down on the deck. We had a trysail up. We had a staysail up and a <clears throat> tiny little uh, Yankee out forwards. And it, yeah, it got, well, like, to give you an idea of how serious it was, my crew came to me and said, we don't want you to go on deck anymore because the way the clipper work race works, you know, you've really only got one professional on the boat. You're the only oh, professional. Gosh. Yeah. You're the only electrician. You're the only engineer. You're the only navigator. You're the only medic. You're the only, like, you know, it's, it's why it's better to have yeah. more professional on the boat, right? <clears throat> Which the Clipper race has now got, and, and that's how they do it. But at that time, it was just one professional. So I didn't go on deck for like 10 days in the worst of it. They just sort of wouldn't let me. But at the same time, during that period where I was living down below uh, at the nav station, I remember having a, a chat with them. There was only three people on deck at any one time, one steering, one sat by the companionway entrance, which is a distance of like 10 or 15 feet. And then one near the helmsman, but looking backwards and calling the big waves because the, the waves were enormous. And uh, there was most of the waves and wind were coming from the west. And then there was this little break set that was coming down from the northwest. And uh, it, it threatened to really kind of heal the boat over onto its side. So when this wave was seen coming in from the northwest, the boat would then be turned. Its bum was stuck into that wave. Didn't matter because we just got a trysail and a, and a, and a hard sheeted uh, staysail and jib. Take that wave and then get back on course. Everything that was happening on the deck of that boat was all put there because I'd read books and I'd been told to do those things. I had learned that, that, that wisdom all the way through. And then I had the opportunity to put into place something I saw on 
like master and commander or something, which is I said to the crew, in the event of any one of you going over the side, I will not be coming back for you. I will not attempt to turn the boat around because I'll kill everybody else trying to trying to get back for you, which was quite a quite a moment for everybody to realize. But from that and realizing that to the man ropes on the deck, the extra rigging that we put on the mast, the sail setup, the everything we were doing, the fact that I could recognize it was safe because we were in sequence with the waves. We were doing like 15, 16 knots and the wave trains are normally doing between 15 and 18 knots. So if you can stay on the waves and stay in them, it massively reduces both the apparent wind and the uh, work cycles on your gear. I've not been in a hurricane before this point. Uh, Every single part of that was taught to me by those who went before whose books I read, whether it's a a textbook or a, a story written about a voyage. So the, the, the value in that is, you know, I- immeasurable. So if I can do a thing now with this uh, this podcast of mine, the Mariner's Library, I'm more than happy to do it. But uh, what an amazing opportunity to get given all these books and have the material suddenly to be able to set forth and do that. <laughs> wow, what's an amazing story. And, uh, and I couldn't agree with you more. You know, quite a few times I've found myself self, uh, saying, what would Bernard Matessier do in this situation? Yeah. You know, yeah. and I've, since I've read his books and I've read a couple of them more than once, um, you know, things come into your head, you know, you, you know, sure. if you read it, yeah. If you read enough sailing nonfiction, you, you'll, you'll have a little story in your head for every situation at some, you know, eventually. Yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah. Uh, you know, sometimes it's the littlest things. Like I can remember uh, reading something, it was talking about playing the what if game, but every time, you know, it's sunny and it's nice. You just think, well, what if, like, what if the rudder yeah. falls? now what if that whale decides to ram the boat what if what if what if and sometimes you can end up with really counterintuitive solutions to problems that you only come up with that cool solution because you you had hours to think about it not in a stressful situation for me an example of that would be i got into a situation southeast of uh, newfoundland uh solo on the open 60 where <clears throat> the um uh how much i, was, I the situation was that the boat ended up filling up with water. The way it happened was that I decided to put down the scoops in the bottom of this race boat to fill up the aft tanks. And then as I went to the companionway to have a cigarette and look out at the world and do some uh, micro micro meditating, whatever that is, uh, the Code 5 uh, headsail just started to tear at the bottom of the, uh, the tack and it just ripped itself completely off the forestay in such a leisurely fashion that I had time to undo the lazy sheet from its stripping turn on the winch and get it out of the bag and then cut the working sheet. It was just, I just, the sail just ripped off the forestay and then disappeared downwind whilst the boat's doing like 20 knots. So just clearly <laughs> it had enough of what's going on. Now yeah. my attention is thrown into what to do with the sail. Like I'm racing, I'm in second place in this race. It's going to be my best result. And I forget that I'm filling up water in the bottom of the boat, uh, filling up the ballast tanks. And um, they have vents on deck, so it's not like that's a massive concern. But in retrospect, the scoops are about the size of the opening on the top of your cup, and the vents on the deck are not that big. And we're doing 20 knots, a lot of pressure water going into these tanks. But I'm, meanwhile, changing the sail and doing all my thing. It's like 45 minutes later, I finish up, close the forward hatch, which is in its own sealed section on the front of the boat. I go back to the cockpit. You know, give myself a slap on the back. Well done. I step down into the into the cabin, which on an open 60 is the boat's um, 21 feet wide. And that compartment on that boat's probably about a third of the boat. So it's like 20 foot long and 20 foot wide. And it's thigh deep in water. Oh, and geez. 
The electronics are mounted high up because it's a race boat. This kind of thing can happen, but it's lapping against the bottom of the, well, not lapping. It's quite a lot of waves. We're doing 20 knots still, right? So the uh, it, it's it's up against the Raymarine gear. It's up against satellite gear. It's something's about to really kind of go down here, right? And the initial instinct in that situation is to like stop and sort out the problem. But I've been playing the what if game for so long with that boat that I had had this thought in the Southern Ocean, if I had a catastrophic flooding situation, and you know, I'm not trusting electric bilge pumps. That's that's almost like, <laughs> that's like trusting to hope or something, right? Like I hope the batteries are strong. I hope that there's not any, you know, any cotton or piece of plastic around the pump. I hope that a t-shirt hasn't gone up against it. You need something that's gonna empty the boat like right now. And we don't have a big diesel engine on those boats, only 38 horsepower, it's a race boat. But what I'd realized is that where these scoops come up through the bottom of the boat, there's um, uh, like a spin-off connection point. There's a flexible hose that then goes up to the ballast tank. That's the route it normally takes. But I realized that if I turn the scoops to the suck setting and spun this hose off the actual scoop, suddenly, if there was a lot of water in this boat, like a lot, a lot of water, it would just suck directly from the inside of the boat. So speed was actually my friend. So rather than falling into the trap of stopping the boat and then having nothing that I could do, wherever this water had come from, it needed to leave the boat and the what if game had given me the answer, which was keep going as fast as you can spin these two things. And I did it quite calmly after the first couple of seconds of looking at it in wild eyed disbelief, as you can imagine, it's the middle of the night, you know, we're just off Newfoundland, like uh, within a couple of minutes, the water was back down to a couple of inches. And then I could see what the issue was, which is that I had cracked the ballast tank and it was just spewing water into the cabin. So playing the what if game is a little thing that I learned to do in a book. And then by following that, following the philosophy of professional forethought, I had this go-to that I could use, which totally saved me in that in that situation. Luckily, the hull was not ruptured. It wasn't that kind of an issue, but um, it was, you know, a lot, <laughs> a lot of water and everything I owned was adrift in the little beam of light from my torch uh, on the little ocean inside my boat. So I think, you know, it used to be that you'd go and work on a ship and you'd have all this information passed to you by mentors and by being in and around the ship. But for many modern sailors, they spend a disproportionately large amount of their time ashore compared to what they are at sea. And uh, you miss out on that direct communication with real experts that have been doing it for decades. So the access point is reading, sailing, nonfiction. So I'm glad I'm glad you get your joy from that in the, in the same way I do. <laughs> Yeah, I, I love uh, I love the genre. I've I've you know still read sailing nonfiction and I, and I write sailing nonfiction. I've written uh, oh. three or four okay. books. Yeah, I didn't know yeah, that. In fact, cool. Yeah, in fact, I'm I'm going to publish one soon about uh, about Newfoundland, about my my recent journey up there. Good for you. Oh, that's cool. Like I, you know, I've got such a writer's block. I think with a tramp, with a, a script that has sat on a desk like for ten years, you keep looking at it, you get such a point, such a mountain to. To, to get back into it it's almost like oh i just start again you know but it's uh i've had success in some some things in my life and i still really struggle with with stuff like that you know it's uh procrastination is a big issue for everybody and book writing i think is one that you can really procrastinate if you're not uh disciplined about it what what's what's your secret how do you get to the end of writing the book what's what's the way that gets you there um you know what i i have put myself in a situation where i either publish books and sell them or or starve <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> oh this is like uh thinking you're gonna die is a great alarm clock i see okay right 
So publishing yeah. the book, <laughs> basically. Yeah, to, to, I hate. You know, so, some, somewhere I read, you know, I mean, maybe this isn't why I've done it, but I have, re I have read somebody say recently that to, to succeed as an artist, you have to have no plan B. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's like burn your boats, right? It's that thing. It's like once the yeah. once the invading armies landed, they gotta burn the boats. Otherwise, and that's again, that's that's for me this year. Like Spartan really drew to a close about the seventh of October this year. I know that because it was when I got back from the uh, from the last event. We've done fifty, sixty thousand miles. Um, you know, it's been a, a good ride, but it's at an end now. I think the way that the world is, um, it's more complicated to do that kind of work because people can't join you as easily. They maybe don't choose to go on a boat with 16 other strangers from around the world who they, they don't know who they are. They don't know what their health background is. They're trying to pass through COVID checkpoints at airports and all the rest of that stuff. Doing that kind of business now is not for me. Right. So from October until like Christmas, there was this period of unreality of like, well then where, where does the money come from? Cause the, you could go and work on a super yacht. I've done that before. I've been, I've enjoyed it. I'm, I'm past it now, unless it was an exceptional kind of owner who was uh, uh, like a good egg, which some of them are and some of them aren't. Um, but it's, uh, I, I wouldn't really want to go and do that. I like things that have got like a bit of grit built in, right? They're a bit more difficult. And the way the world is now, we have this incredible possibility to like, yeah, self-publish a book and then narrate it and have it as an audio book and make content and do yeah. videos and, and and people will pay that little that little bit per month or that little bit per item, which once it's added together, creators have this unprecedented opportunity to do what they really love doing and others to vicariously live through them. But it's um it's a new path for me and it's uh it's a little bit daunting. And my my major place where things come together online now is Patreon. My my Patreon page um is is the place where I'm starting to build a community of people and people can choose to be at levels where they get extra videos and extra content, extra podcasts, all the rest of it. And that's growing. But it's, uh, as you say, it's a very focusing experience to realize this better get done by the end of the day. Yeah. Hey, otherwise, I don't know where the rent's coming from, whether it's a podcast or a, or a video or whatever it is, you know, I, I guess yeah. maybe that might fix me. Yeah, you have to get into the mindset that it's your job and you're going to work, and, uh, yeah. and that's what you have to do. And and you know, and if, and if you're having writer's block or you're you're having trouble sitting down to finish uh, the book you've started, uh, yeah. you know, think of it as the same way as you would think of diving into cold water. You know, you might only be able to take two or three strokes today, but but you're going to dive in yeah. and give it a go anyway. Yeah, I was reading that book, um, the uh, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, and he's got another book called Turning, another book called Turning Pro. He's he's been on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he he talks about it this this resistance which people have to overcome every day, and then his methodology for getting past it. A lot of which is turning up, like standing there. Okay, we're going to do this is what we're going to do today, right? We're not going to do anything else, and um, that's an incredibly I think sailing teaches that as well. Certainly the preparation of the boat does. Like we have to yep. sand this thing and we just have to sand this thing. We've got to replace this plank and it's going to take 17 hours and that's what's going to happen. There's a lot of really positive messages in that that we can we can take on board and then use in other, use in other things. I know when we did the sail training, like basically we we do sail training for kids under 16, which was like building hard skills in the boat and uh, – building the ability to interact with each other and communication, but the, all the evidence had shown that um, psychologically they weren't able to take it and apply it elsewhere. It's a learned skill to be able to take like, learning from one area and then apply it elsewhere in your, 
in your life. And I, I think you're right. Like something like the, the, the cold water stuff now might be enough of a, uh, a reminder of what discipline looks like and a reminder of what perseverance and grit looks like to, to kick me into gear with all these projects that are, are left half done. It's, I read other people's books and take joy in their version of events. And yet I sit down to look at my own and go, well, why would anybody want to read? It's <laughs> like, it's just a guy on a boat, you know? <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. We're all a bit of that, right? A lot of conflicts in our heads that don't make sense. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you know what? Writing, writing is always terrible. The, you know, the first draft is always terrible and you can't have to expect it to be. So, um, you know, writing a good book is, is 90% editing and rewriting. Um, right, right, right. Just, yeah. just you know, you know, just just the beginning is just the is just the beginning. It's just. Uh, I, I guess that's the benefit of, of of starting a community. Like you know, with my podcast, I began a couple of thousand downloads for it, and people communicate with me and share things with me. And then I had a, a chat the other day who's like, "Hey, I do this professionally. I'm like, I do ghostwriting. I've written articles and I've written you know professional things, and I'll help you with your book if you want." You're like, really? Like this is amazing. Like people in this new world of data and digital content reaching out and helping each other to mutual benefit you know he wanted to go sailing more and, and learn more skills shorthand it's like sure i can help you with that and you can help me with this listen yeah well you know what as writers we need that the uh, fact I that we're con- con- connected in the way that we are now is it's totally it is yeah. it's wonderful yeah, yeah. I, I rely on other people to uh to read my stuff and and um look for errors and give me whatever uh yeah i'm trying to get into so I, I'll do that for you as well. If you if you have written something and you want advice oh, on it, send it to me. All right, cool. I'd really appreciate it. Uh, yeah, no, no problem. Uh, I, I don't things. mind doing that at all because people because people do that for me. We we have to have people. Nice. We have oh, to have a community cool. yeah, of people yeah. that do that for each other. I think uh, you know sometimes when you're writing down your own feelings about something and it's to do with you know, relationships you've had and all the rest of it, it's uh, it can be very positively cathartic if you get it done. <laughs> if you don't get it done. You, you kind of you still haven't worked through the problem and you still haven't written the book and now you've got two problems it would be nice oh, yeah. to kind of put all of that to to bed in a way for me and, and i and a lot of these things that we're talking about is is me getting ready for going and doing the global solo challenge because um i might be on a boat that's going to go really quickly um my target time my, my boat has been around the world previously in 85 days that's the fastest she's ever done it right so my <clears throat> um desire would to be that quick if indeed it's a year where the weather allows it to be that quick some years are not that fast right she, she's done the Vendee Globe twice um solo non-stop she did it once in 105 days and once in 85 days like some years are quicker than others but either way around it's going to be a very long time on my own and I do have methods for dealing with these things but they're going to fall down as well right so I'm trying to like set up now how to get through this thing that's coming like for example i don't um <clears throat> i don't watch any movies that have any kind of horror content what have you if it's so that it's clearly comedy then I, I'll, I'll go for it right it's like tropic thunder or something but deep psychological thrillers where people are doing terrible things to each other you can't have that in your head uh, rattling around when you're then going to spend <clears throat> 20 odd days going through the southern ocean freezing cold and you know hardly sleeping at all so i'm preparing for what's going to come in a year's time by <clears throat> getting into the cold weather stuff now by let's get the book done if you're going to have it do it or throw it away let's get the business sorted out into what it's going to be let's not watch any movies let's write letters to myself that i will unpack you know when at my darkest moments kind of like a 
a morale bank of things that I will have other friends cool. writing them, my partners writing them for me because I know how that can get. I know that um, <clears throat> I need to have a little box of things I can stick my hand into and I know something positive is coming out of it. My email inbox is a, a, a minefield or has been previously of what might be on the other end of an email that's a problem for me, you know? So I'm trying to get everything lined up and and these 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 things that are kind of like in your life, like I should get around to that. I should get around to that. It's uh, this is a year for, for getting those things done. So if you can help me with the book, that'd be, that'd be awesome. <clears throat> yeah. I'd be glad to. And you know, and if, if you have, um, I mean, you were talking about having an emotional <laughs> breakdown and your, and your father and your girlfriend, mm. uh, that's what people want to read about. People want to oh. read about emotions. They want to read yeah. that other people are having problems too. They want to read that other people have weaknesses. Uh, they, they want to feel the emotions. Yeah. If you, if you went oh, through yeah. an emotional thing and and you can write about it that's that's great that's money you know that's uh that's what people want it was funny because it was uh there was a documentary that was made about the race around the world and there was um there was only five competitors there were more at the start line but people fell out quickly or didn't go over the start line or whatever it was but you know we could we could have a conversation about how the fact that most around the world racing is on the decline apart from the Vendée globe there's so many new things now which are coming up but let's say it has been in decline. If you look at how many boats have been in the ocean, the Volvo Ocean Race, uh, the Deluxe Race disappeared. A lot of the big races around the world have finished now. And uh, this uh, event that I was involved in with the Deluxe Race, it was a very small group of people out there. Um, and the 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 uh, producers of the documentary, they just gave everybody SD cards and said, you know, fill them up with as much stuff as you can. We would like to see these SD cards when be filled when you get back so i just did what i was told but i was the only one that did what i was told which meant that there was more footage of me than anybody else so completely inadvertently the documentary ended up having a lot of stuff about me in it so it followed my story going through all this and uh yeah if you're going to have a breakup with uh, somebody a really tumultuous emotional breakup um i would say don't do it uh when it's then going to be on espn and, and start <laughs> everybody in sailing is going to see it to the point that you're <laughs> phoning up i'm phoning up a sail off and they're like hey you're on the telly i'm like oh no like <laughs> I'm crying oh, am i crying like where am i at you know so <laughs> i hear you it's uh i i yeah I, I guess it's something for me to to move past in in my in my own way we all have these things right and it's about that's the kind of um sailing can uh, sailing on your own with lots of time to think about these things can allow you to identify what's important to you and what's what's not different things are important to different different people um at that time in my life as well i was <clears throat> i'd done this clipper thing going around the world and then literally lived on the boat in the boatyard for eight weeks while we got the new boat ready and then set off on that so i had no home i had no place i was heading back to i had a very um tumultuous situation going on in relationships my life is completely different now i love nova scotia we have a beautiful house we're soon about to move to another house which is like a dream home for us yeah, further away from the the sea actually uh, but uh, a little bit more garden which i love and um i'm really excited about it. i got a little uh, son isaac like i'm in so much more of a positive position that also is a reason why i'm now like okay i'll go and i'll go and do this thing again i do not underestimate at all the uh the massive challenge it is to go and, I, I sail around the world twice this will be my first time doing it without stops i feel that i'm just about at a position where i could um take it on and and hit all the targets i set for myself why not win it but i could set the targets i set for myself emotionally physically um philosophically um 
I would not have liked to have done it during COVID. I would not have liked to have done it when I was going through a divorce recently. I would not like to have done it, you know, from many periods. You've got to pick your moments, right? But um, if I can get that lined up this time, then I think it could be a the first time sailing around the world, which would be really enjoyable in a, in a, in a way I've only glimpsed that previously. Well, it sounds like fun you know, sailing a, an open 60 uh, with a whole bunch of with every other boat in the race starting before you. Right. <laughs> and and uh, trying to catch them. There's a couple of other opens. I had to talk to the race, I had this uh, cutoff at 55 feet. And it's like, oh, I can see what you're doing. You're deliberately trying to keep open 60s out of it. That was the impression I had. And I think they were just trying to pack out like how their event was going to go. And um, at the moment, there's there's like 32 people, I think it's 32 or 33 people that are like fully registered and ready to go. Um, it's going to be a huge event. Like that's bigger than the Vendée Globe, right? The Vendée Globe is normally limited to 27. The Ocean Globe race is coming. That's got loads of boats. They're basically going to be yeah. on the ocean at the same time. Um, we've got all sorts going on in, in 2023 for sailing. Um, but this element of the of the race where these lot are setting off before us, I that's going to be, you know, I hope that they're going to put it on virtual regatta because that's going to be a hell of a choice for competitors at the beginning. I don't know if you ever did the the virtual regatta for the Vendée Globe, but um, it's uh, you'll be able to pick. Do you want to be on a 36 foot boat racing for up to 200 days? Or do you want to be on a 60 foot boat that's racing for 80 or 90 days? And it's going to be two completely different experiences. And I'm, I'm hoping to do a series of um, interviews with the other competitors from the event Um share any knowledge I have. I'm always very open about anything I know about sailing and, and learn from them, their backstory and, and what brings them to it, because it's a, it's a hell of a thing to go and do. And uh, I think it's going to be a big enough challenge for me just going and doing it for 80 or 90 days, let alone, would you take your boat? Is that something you, you'd consider doing the, the global solo challenge on your boat? Uh, well, you know what? I originally wanted to do the the golden globe race. So yeah. in 2019, I started registering for it i got an i got i got an invite and um i was i was getting my paperwork all together and i was about to write the check for the first you know the first check for the entry fee for the race that's happening right now yeah and i stopped myself i literally had my pen in my hand and my checkbook out oh wow and i stopped and i said well let's just take a minute and think about this if i thought (laughs) to myself if if you spent the same amount of money and put the same amount of time and effort and to anything else, could you think of anything else better? Mm, mm. Yeah, and I thought. Yeah. My, and I thought. I thought. Well, well, I could obviously I could sail to uh, places that I wanted to go and stop. <laughs> I thought, yeah, well, okay, where would I go? I started. I started scrolling around on Google Earth, and I thought, well, I've already been to the Bahamas. Let's go north. I've heard Maine is cool, so I looked at Maine, and I saw roads and houses everywhere. So I kept going further north. I'm like, well, what's this next island? Oh, that's Nova Scotia. That looks cool. Yeah, that's it. And I, but I yeah. saw houses. Yeah, and again, I saw mostly roads and houses on the coast. And I and I kept scrolling north, and I'm like, "Well, what's this big island? I've never Newfoundland. I've heard of that." <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I immediately I saw the south coast was completely uninhabited, and it had fjords. Mm-hmm. And I scrolled in closer, and I saw the waterfalls and the forest and the rocks. And I started looking around, and there's no civilization. And I, that's when I that's when I discovered Newfoundland. And yeah. right away, I thought, "Yeah, I don't really want to sail around the world nonstop. I want to go to cool places." Huh. No, no, and write and write books about it. That's, that's what I'm doing now. I think if you were entering an event like that, like a non-stop round the world race, particularly on a small boat, and you're doing it because you love sailing, you're gonna hate it because that's <laughs> not really what it's about. It's like it's like having something you go and do for the 
for the weekend for a short period of time and you get joy from it. Like I know you go and do yeah. uh, paintballing. Okay, you're going to do paintballing. We didn't do paintballing all Saturday afternoon. Brilliant fun. How about living in a world where you're getting pelted with paintballs all the time? Like that is not going to be a very enjoyable way to, to go about right. it. Yeah, for nine yeah. months. <laughs> yes, and that, that's what it is. If you get joy and, and personal insight from challenging yourself in that specific kind of way, that you have the skill set that's going to make it a relatively stress-free environment. You can do your rigging, you can do your engine. You can do, if all that's coming together for you, there could be something for you at the end of that kind of race. My experience of doing the solo around the world racing, if you boil it down to its most like fundamental <clears throat> elements, is that I sat in a hotel in La Rochelle, looked out the window at my boat in the marina, and I knew that that day I was going to set off and sail around the world. And when I got back, they put me in the same room. And I looked out the window at the boat and thought, I just got back from around the world. And there was very little difference. There wasn't like some trumpet blast in the east, you know, and like my hair still on end and I understood all things. I was just very tired. Luckily, I'd come through it financially broken even, which most of the other competitors haven't. And uh, what did I have to show for it? Like, yeah, it was very, it's kind of a narcissistic thing to do to go and sail solo in an event like that anyway right you've got to have quite a lot of self-confidence you've got to have a lot of self-reliance and independence and if those things are slightly out of hand we call that narcissism so it's always like on the edge of it you know and uh you, you can't really sail solo around the world because so many people help you in so many ways practical ways and donation sponsorship support all that kind of stuff so you have to be very aware i think i, I listened to a vonley globe maybe it was like Peron or someone saying <clears throat> that um when you jump out of an aircraft for the first time to go parachuting, you have no idea what's going on really until you're on the ground and you can, even then you have no idea what happened. The second time you go, you have a little bit more awareness of like what's going on around you. But the third and fourth time is where you start to enjoy the, the actual free fall element. And then here comes the parachute and control the parachute and land. And that's kind of what it's like with those really big sails. Like it takes a little bit of getting used to, you know? So I'm just stepping up now to go and do my first. I've, the longest I've ever been at sea on my own nonstop is 40 days. Um, this will be doubling that at least at the very, very best, probably more than that. So um, I see that as being hugely challenging, but I feel, and that's what I said earlier, I'm going to, I'm going to hit my personal targets, which would be things like, have I developed more of my online content, both the content itself and the community around it? Have I strengthened the, financial situation for um you know we finished up with spartan ocean racing there was some there's a lot of people that got cancelled during covid we still got to pay back those debts has it helped with that real world problem have i improved the stability of my familial situation by including you know getting my revenue stream uh, sorted out have i got racing in boats around the world out of my system yes or no like i've got a you know Am I going to become rich doing it? Absolutely not. Am I going to win it? Well, probably not. Maybe not. Who knows? You know what? It's possible. Like, but it can't hang everything on that or I can't anyway. So I got to hit those things and none of them are enjoy the sale because that's not really what's going on. So I suspect that uh, you were very, very wise <laughs> to do what you did. And I've spent hundreds of nights at sea doing this kind of stuff, looking at the chart plotter zooming in on what is just a an amulty chart and then looking oh there's a little there's a little lane there comes up from the church and then i wonder what that looks like and that looks like it's quite just looking at the coastline on the chart because you're that mm -hmm. sick of being at sea sometimes you know so i one of the 
one of the I'd love to do the Vendée Globe. I'd love to do the West Around the World uh, solo nonstop record attempt, and I would love to sail around the world with my family. That that's uh, it would have to be different kinds of experiences, and I'd have to have a very specific thing I was aiming for, like finish the Vendée Globe, attempt to get the West Around the World record, or the the joy and pleasure of doing it with my family. But um, I think you've got to be very specific if you want to spend two hundred odd days on your own in a thirty or forty foot boat going through the Southern Ocean and, and parts out of sight. Like that's uh, is not for me. Yeah, you know, I was reminded over and over again during my my uh, sail to Newfoundland and back um, how happy I was not to be in the Golden Globe race right now. Yeah. Um, I don't like uh, I don't like being cold. I don't like being wet and cold. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, I enjoy sailing, but, but uh, I enjoy sailing in the tropics a lot more than I do up in the north. I'll tell you that. Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and, 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 and I enjoy going places. You know, I enjoy, it's really, you know, really what I enjoy the most is dropping the anchor and being in a beautiful anchorage that I like for, for a few days or a week. That's really the best yeah. part for me. You know, I, I love I have, to sail. And after I haven't been sailing for a while, I start to get antsy and I want to go. I want to get offshore again. But really, well, it's the I, arrival and the anchoring and the anchorages and the, the, the natural beauty that I really like the best. This this year, I'm, I haven't totaled up my, or 2022, certainly I had 330,000 miles experience going into 2022. Um, I, I guess I've added another five or 10 this year or something, right? And then none of that have I ever done what you experienced there. Just going into an anchorage, super relaxed hanging out there for a week, seeing what's going on. I have never done that. Everything I've always done has been uh, sail training, uh, deliveries, super yachts, uh, handling race boats, racing from A to B, or running my own charter company racing. It, and, then, and we did do like going to places and anchoring and hanging out. It's never been anything I've ever done in sailing. And I am, I'm not really sure how I got on this path. I do like it. I do love where I'm at. I enjoy it. I, I think there's value I can offer to other sailors on safety things and through experience. But for me personally, there's some point in my sailing career where I'm going to finally do that. It's like leaving the best part of the meat on your plate till <laughs> the end, leaving all the vegetables, everything. And then I'm going to enjoy that. But I, I just have to make sure I don't leave it at 45. I have to make sure I don't leave it too long when the meat's gone cold, you know, but it's, uh, I, I, well, hey, Maybe I, now I, because I've, I've changed COVID is pretty <clears throat> Yeah. I mean, yes. 40, 45 is about how old I was when I started sailing. So you know, you're right, ahead of right. the game. <laughs> just hope for me. Yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I just don't take an open 60. That's the, uh, that's the main thing. Like, <laughs> I'm going to, I reached out to, um, I did a, a video on my um, YouTube channel a little while back and it was a reaction to one of Eric Andera's uh, videos. You might have seen it called Encountering a Force 10 Storm. Um, it's a, a brilliant piece of uh, cinematography. If you, if people haven't seen Eric's channel, it's called No Bullshit, Just Sailing, NBJS. Um, he's a brilliant uh, maker of, uh, of sailing videos. I'm very envious. And in this one, he took his, I think it's a 35-foot Contessa, out into some extremely heavy weather. There had been a 50-knot storm. A 50-knot storm had just gone through, and he, he rode it downwind and in quite a controlled manner he knew exactly where he was he knew what protection he had but it was a lot of wind so i reviewed it um but i didn't want to do him the disservice of just sitting in a nice warm comfy chair and like talking about hey this looks difficult so i uh i reviewed it whilst i was on board the maxi sailing solo through a storm uh, heading across the north to iceland so there's this oh 
25 minute video of me sitting at the bunk and, and outside all sorts of things going on. But through that, I connected with Eric and I was saying to him that um, there might be some interesting opportunities for me coming up uh, with the Open 60, which I'd, I'd love to invite some some people into sail with me. You know, if that's something that would be of interest to you, that to experience that kind of sailing, then I'd be uh, more than happy to, to host you and we can go and sail and, uh, and, and see what that kind of sailing's about, if that's of, of any interest. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah and, cool. and likewise, uh, you know, likewise, maybe you want to come and uh, just go to a nice peaceful anchorage someday oh. and you, you can come, you can come on my boat. Uh, no, I, I would I, love to sail on an open 60. I, I'm, I'm very curious about what that's like. And, sure. uh, and sure. I would love to do it, especially in a situation where I'm not like going all the way, you know, around the world. Yeah. No, no. It's, the, the good thing about them is that everything's pretty much the same, that which makes it easier to understand going into it there's no extras super yachts everything can be like hidden out of sight and you don't know what's going on but clearly an open 60 has only got what it needs and it, it gets you very much in touch with what makes a difference with sail trim what makes a difference with ballasting yeah. and, and all sorts of things because the force is on and my boat's old my boat's um a, a boat that was launched in 1999 and raced first in 2000 so it's many generations back from the new foiling boats but you know for me it's um it's a piece of equipment I can really rely on. The the, the boat I have was um, a rule breaker in its day uh, that it, it, it had a fixed keel where most other boats have gone, all boats have gone to canting keels. But there is an advantage to be had if you have a lot of water ballast available and your thing you're trying to do is go upwind. So you know, I can put something like, I think on that boat, it's like four tons of ballast on either side of the boat. Um, and uh, I can put a ton forward, I can put a ton aft and really trim the boat so that it starts to power up. And from that, although it's a very specific use case, you you can take that and then look at your own boat, other kinds of boats and go, oh, actually, you know, if I strip a bit of weight out the ends here, or if I do this, do that, do the other, I can get something extra from the machine. So whilst open 60 per sailing per se might not be top of your list of things to do, I think it's good to experience it a little bit and sort of see, see what it's all about, you know? <laughs> You have to be quite uh, flexible on my boat, though. There's there's very small apertures between compartments on the boats because of the need for water tightness. So you have to, <laughs> I feel like, kind of reach through hatches and and uh, and stretch your body out to get from point to point. But as okay. long as that's possible for you, you can. <laughs> you hey, can I, I do I do yoga every morning, so I'm oh, very flexible. I was gonna do some more um, chartering with that boat and have people come out and sail with me. It was a massive concern for me of like. They might not be able to be anywhere in the boat apart from the main cabin because for some folks <laughs> uh, who've succumbed to the marvel a little bit too much, they, uh, yeah, you could go like, I don't know what position that's called in yoga, but like almost the splits to get through the, the uh, these compartments. But she's got like seven watertight compartments, right? That's, that's the difference. It's got the front third of the boat is unused. It's just watertight compartments until you get to the, the forecastle, which is just ahead of the mast. And it's its own watertight compartment. And then, the yep. control area in the center of the boat is watertight and then under the cockpit site. So it's a very different kind of, but it kind of looks the same as most boats from the outside. It's got the kind of same elements, but when you get beneath the skin, it's a, uh, it's a totally different kind of thing. So yeah, you can come and join me in that wheelie bin and see what those uh, gorillas are. <laughs> trying to do to it. <laughs> well, I'll double up on my yoga before the, before the, the, yeah. the adventure. Now for, for real, I would love to do that. And, um, Sure. And well, uh, get, get Sorry, yeah. yeah, 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 and uh, and get to work on your book and uh, send 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 me uh, some of it whenever you're ready for it to have someone look at it. Sure, and, uh, sure. And maybe you need to set a goal for 2024 summer to uh, go up into the fjords of Newfoundland and 
kick back and do a little fishing well, and hiking. The, the the most obvious and the unmentioned part of it is that to train for this kind of race, I'm actually going to go and train, right? So I've got one major thing holding me back with my Open 60. We have a fantastic sponsor called uh, Nihil Energy, who are based here in Quebec, who create uh, hydrogen fuel cells. Um, and uh, we're still looking for another sponsor to come on board for this uh, this event. And the the, the focus is to buy uh, the rigging, standing rigging for the for the boat and a new mainsail. They're the two things now. The boat's ready. Other than that, they're going to have this hydrogen fuel cell put on board. We're going to try and do the entire race without using <clears throat> pardon me, uh, fossil fuels. Um, cool. Use hydrogen instead, which I'm, I'm all behind that. And these guys are right on the edge of, there's a lot of people now trying to work out, like, what are we going to do on boats when we're not using uh, diesel engines, you know, and, and how that's going to look going forward. Is it batteries? Um, is it going to be hydrogen? What it is? These guys are on the edge of that. But if we can get the rigging sorted out as soon as possible, I'm going onto the water to try and put in the practice that's required for this kind of race. Like I had an experience sailing into Punta del Este after crossing the Southern Ocean, all that stuff I described earlier, the sail breaking, getting around the horn, catching up. And in the end, I missed second place by 40 seconds. And at that oh. point, I recognize i've been working at this for like 21 days i've sailed six and a half thousand miles and i've lost by the kind of amount that you could lose easily in a thursday night race going around the boys so for the first time for me going into this kind of event i want to practice with the boat and and train with the boat and be on top of all the preparation beforehand to have the maximum possible chance of of, of reeling in those those boats ahead of me right because it would be just awful to have a machine that could do it and then not have prepped it prepped it right or prepped yourself right and then miss out on that opportunity so um i'm going to be going and and newfoundland's the place to go that's 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 the destination right super deep anchorages easy for the open 60 to get into it's yep. 400 miles 500 miles from here i can go to saint pierre and pick up some brie and some uh, beautiful baguettes we've got friends there um yeah. and then uh i'm looking also there's a there's a record a long-standing record which i think i'm up to date saying that it, from Bermuda to the UK, there's a an, a, a, a record there, a World Speed Sailing Record Council uh, uh, event, which uh, is held by like a 44-foot boat. It's this weird outlier of an event, which no one seems to have played the record for in anything quick. So I'm going to have a see about, but can I do like a Bermuda to Europe as a, as a warm-up to real competitive uh, uh, sailing before I go? So that's the kind of thing maybe where you can join me and we can, uh, we can see what we can do with that. Oh, cool. Bermuda to the UK. Yeah, that sounds yeah. awesome. Yeah, because that's uh, it's a good run. And with the right weather system and using the uh, Gulf Stream and everything, I think you could set a really quick time. But obviously, now I've said it, someone's going to go and try and go faster. But um, <laughs> from Monahol, if unless it's an Open 60 or some kind of Super Maxi or a Volvo 70, there's not many things that are quicker than an Open 60. So you've got a good chance as long as you can sail it relatively clean, you know. So um, that's the kind of thing I'm going to try and do to get ready because – Last time I set off on an open 60 go around the world, I'd only sailed solo 500 miles. Uh, the boat was in a terrible state inside and I had no clue what I was doing. Um, and I do not want to do that again. So if I can be quick from the start this time, um, yeah, there'll be, it'd be a, a glorious thing to be on the boat, to have good performance, know what I'm doing, the boat's organized, I'm in the right headspace, I've got the knowledge. That might be for the first time, like jumping out of the airplane and actually knowing what's going on. Yeah, oh, it sounds great. It might be a good writing opportunity for me as well. Write, yeah, a, write a piece about it. Absolutely. About, uh, breaking the speed record in an open 60. Well, 
It'd be pretty cool. There's another record which is uh, here from Nova Scotia to Saint Pierre. So if you want something a little shorter, that's the other one that's on my on my radar for the summer. Oh yeah, Nova Scotia to Saint Pierre. Yeah, that would just that would just take you a couple of days, huh? Yeah, it's. I think the record is 27 hours. It's like 340 miles. It's like well within what an open 60 can do in 24 hours. Um, just going to get the right weather system. So again, just and that doesn't have to be solo. That could be crew. So just sit and wait for the right. It just, I think, would get me personally as a not very competitive person. Uh, it would get me in the right mindset before going and trying to do this thing in the global solo challenge. So, yeah, what's this fact? See what happens. <laughs> yeah, cool, great. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. We've, uh, I've got, I've got enough uh, material now for two episodes out of this. So we've spent a couple hours. <laughs> awesome. I don't don't bore people with that. <laughs> oh, don't no, bore people with my content, but. Not at all. This has been this has been fascinating. Lots of lots of good conversation. Lots of good information. Uh, lots of useful information for the listeners. Um, so, so. so, where can people find you online? Yeah, my uh, YouTube channel is called The Mariner. The podcast available everywhere. Also called The Mariner. And then uh, for the stories for the the books that sailing nonfiction. That podcast is called The Mariner's Library. There's already seven or eight books there. You just they're like twenty five minutes each. Those episodes. And then uh, Patreon.com is pretty much the you know, you used to do a lot of Facebook stuff and Instagram. I think I'll maybe get back into that some, but um, it's mainly for me on patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, or you can catch me at my webpage, which is csmthemariner.com. So it's all around the Mariner and my name, my, everyone calls me CSM rather than going through the whole Chris Stamore major. It seemed a lot easier just to do that. So CSM and the Mariner should pick things up online and uh, go from there. It looks like there's going to be some really, interesting new content for 2023 great well uh i'm gonna switch back on and, and tell you goodbye nice. in person uh it's been great talking to you chris and um i'll put this on the podcast if you can send me uh a couple of photos uh, of your boat or anything you want to go on to the podcast uh, show notes page i'll put that on at paultrammel.com slash podcast paultrammel.com slash podcast yeah. and feel free to use this uh on your podcast as well if you want i don't know if you Thanks, yeah, I, yeah. I can send it to you if you like or however you want to do that sure i've got a copy of it here that's through my microphone with you in the background i'll see how that if i can level it out but uh we'll, we'll coordinate on that see what we can do but i won't put anything out until you you've done yours i think it's good to do it that that way around i'll uh often my podcasts are two hours so my guys will get it all at once i don't want to be that before. all right you'll, you'll guys cool. get it yeah <laughs> this will this will go live uh part one will go live monday and then nice. the following monday part two so this will go out pretty quick Sure, sure. As something aside from the podcast, in terms of like developing your podcast, is there any, like I say, I'm like, I guess my stuff would pick up like in the first week, like 700, 800 downloads, something like that. Like, how do I go from there to more numbers? Is there any, as you're a bit ahead on this uh, course, is uh, um, doing this kind of thing, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I'm not much for, further ahead of that. Uh, my, my, uh, I get, uh, I put out one podcast every week. And they get they end up getting about two thousand after after about a month, you know. Yeah, so, okay, so we might be in the, we might be in the same area, and I've kind of leveled so. off. My podcast was growing fast until about this this level, and now it's leveled off. That's why so, that's why I was asking the question because I feel the same thing. So it's uh, it's interesting that you should be experiencing that. Yeah, I, that, I, that I, might be all the listeners. <laughs> there might not be any more. <laughs> that was my concern, right? But then things like like what numbers is Andy Shell doing? Like I get the feeling he's doing lots, lots and lots. I, yeah, I don't know. I'd like yeah. to ask him. Yeah, we'll have to. Yeah, we'll have to ask. If, you, if you find out from him, let me know. Because uh, 
Because I really I don't know. Do I just bold face say, look, we had this conversation and you seem to be like streets ahead. Uh, what What is it that you're doing? I He's got a lot of podcasts out there. There's, you know, he's in high, high yeah. numbers. So um, I don't know. I was trying to connect with uh, Eric Andera because he's got like half a million subscribers. And I think he's one of the, the people on YouTube that's actually doing real sailing as opposed to a lot of the ones which are just like vlogs and yeah. people and places stuff. So uh, I thought that connecting with him might be a way. And that's why I thought if we could do something where we all go together on it, then there might be spread yeah. around where because you see that with a lot of car podcasts and YouTube people where also, they're all interacting with each other and collaborating and each different market yeah. sector that is what's available elsewhere. Right. So I can get everybody yeah. on the boat. Maybe we could take the maxi and do some sailing. I just fill it up with sailing podcasters and YouTubers so we can all help yeah. each other. It might be kind of cool. Well, exactly. And that's, you know, and that's one thing we're doing right now. Like if, if you put me on your podcast and I put you yeah. on mine, I'm actually yeah. interviewing David House tomorrow. Uh, he's the oh, ocean, the ocean sailing podcast. Absolutely, yeah, he, yeah. He's who got he's who got me started in this. He interviewed me when I after I wrote my first book, uh, Becoming a right. Sailor, and that's what got me uh, interested in podcasting. Sure, um, sure. So well, I'd like to chat with him. Yeah, I'm very interested in his his business model. He seems to have found a place where he can do what he wants to do in a way that I was trying to do it. I don't think his model necessarily works here, or not the way I was doing it, but I. I couldn't yeah. really understand how he was making it work, but I think he's just a lot more organized. And you know, John Kretschmer makes it work. Uh, I've interviewed yeah. John Kretschmer a couple of times. He, there, his, I only um, know him through, through Alan talking about him, you know, but uh, yeah. he's he's where I want to be. Like the thing for me to be, and whether it's in the podcast or not, it's absolute fact. It is virtually impossible to ensure what we were doing. After the Ukraine conflict, we got an email from oh. our insurance saying, we can no longer give you a race waiver. And uh, at that point... I thought I had found an insurance company that could do it. And then it's like, are they legit? Are they not legit? But it's basically impossible to have proper insurance for the kind of thing that I want to do with boats. But John's in this great situation. Oftentimes he's like chartering boats. So it's not even his own boat and people will pay whatever they need to pay to get on the boat. As Alan said, you just like send him five grand and hope that he can fit you on at some point in the year, you know? So I'm like, and they're cruising and they're hanging out and having fun. I'm like, I'm doing it all yeah. ways wrong. I just found the hardest possible way of doing it. And try to fix up. <laughs> Oh my goodness! All right, well, we'll yeah, try making it work uh, somehow. I'll uh, I'll see what we can do with the um the maxi. The maxi can sleep like ten, twelve. You know, we can have a crew of twenty four on that, and um she's fully fitted and ready to go. Like maybe that's the way to do it. Maybe the open sixty is very tight for filming, and it's very hard to kind of connect it to anybody else's sailing. But the maxi is just like a big boat, you know, and it could have some really interesting folks on there. We could we could make something good out of it. So. All right, I'll keep talking to cool. people and, and asking around. And uh, if anything comes up, I'll, I'll give you a shout. Great. Sounds good. Thanks for being on the show. No worries, and, man. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, and let's do this again. Absolutely. No problem at all. All right, you have a good evening. Okay, bye. Yes, bye-bye, man. Bye.